In a world where fans have grown tired of the same old cookie-cutter Comic-Con formats, only one con defies the odds. Only one Comic-Con stands what fans really want. Only one Comic-Con dares calls itself terrific. That's right, this August 17th through the 19th at the all-new giant-sized Mohegan Sun Expo Center in Uncasville, Connecticut, comes Terrific Con! Connecticut's Terrific Comic Con is back with New England's largest gathering of comic book artists and writers. Plus, Terrific Con delivers actors from your favorite TV shows and movies. And there's an all-new expanded gaming section as we give you tabletop gaming, video games, and so much more. Plus, don't forget, all kids 10 and under get in free at Terrific Con and can be part of the all-new All Yeah Kids Comic Con. Join us for three full days of Comic-Con action only in Connecticut at TerrificCon. For more information, go to our website, www.terrificcon.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. You might have heard last week on uh, Word Balloon, I had Mike Cronenberg on. Mike uh, not only wrote the Bat Cave Companion or co-wrote it with Michael Yuri of Tomorrow's, but uh, Michael is also one of the creative minds behind Ringside Seat, a great boxing digital magazine that I'm a huge fan of. Well, uh, my love for boxing and comics will continue in this episode. Uh, Doug Fisher, the editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine, and a guy who we've each encountered uh, each other on the press route, you know, over the years. I mean, I spent 16 years covering boxing from uh, 1989 to uh, 2006, and uh, it was a, a great run, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I did it for uh, Ring Magazine briefly, but then Boxing Illustrated for a long time, and then also uh, did coverage uh, here in Chicago Radio for our local all-talk station, The Score. Got to go to many fights in Vegas and New York and all over the country, really, uh, covering some of the great champions of the 90s. Um, man, Julio Cesar Chavez, Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, Riddick Bowe, uh, Evander Holyfield, George Foreman, uh, great names. And uh, it's great to talk shop with uh, another guy who was on the beat as well, but also can talk a little bit about what's going on in today's boxing world. I think boxing is having an excellent resurgence. Um, and uh, it was fun talking to Mike, and it's now going to be fun to uh, share a little thoughts with Doug as well. Uh, I can't help it, man. I, I love boxing. I know it's a controversial sport. I know it's a very violent sport. And I don't deny, uh, you know, having uh, conflicting interests or, I should say, feelings about the sport. But especially uh, its past, I, I just think there's something really uh, epic about hand-to-hand uh, -hand, uh, competition like that. And in a way that, frankly, mixed martial arts and wrestling just doesn't do it for me. I have great respect for both of those disciplines. But uh, for me, it's always been boxing. And it goes back to a love that... As I've said in other conversations, goes back to uh, my grandfather and my father being uh, big fans as well, and me kind of becoming of age during the Ali era, the Sugar Ray Leonard era, Marvin Hagler, Thomas Hearns, Roberto Duran, uh, so many of the great fighters of the 70s and 80s in particular, and then to get the opportunity to cover a lot of uh, the great stars of the late 80s and 90s into the early 2000s was uh, a privilege. And uh, I, I love talking about it. So uh, it's great to uh, sit down with Doug Fisher and talk not only about boxing, but comic books as well. And uh, Doug is a comic book fan. And, and just it's, it's like we're mirror images of each other because uh, Doug makes his living in boxing. But comics has uh, been a persistent uh, love of his. And it's great to hear about his love of comics. And that definitely comes through in this conversation. So I hope you enjoy uh, today's show with Doug Fisher, editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine, more boxing and comics on today's Word Balloon. 
It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support and indulging me on shows like this uh, via Patreon. Thank you again. Uh, Word Balloon is free, but if you enjoy what you hear on Word Balloon, uh, maybe you'd consider subscribing via Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. Thank you again for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. All right, without further ado, let's get into our long but uh, fun conversation with Doug Fisher. I'm uh, really uh, excited to have uh, this conversation, and you can tell from the tone in my voice. It was a really good time. Doug Fisher, editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine and comics aficionado on today's Word Balloon. I'll tell you when we met, um, and actually, we could, we, uh, well, regardless, I'll let you know. I th- were you at the James Tony michael Nunn fight? No. <laughs> oh, okay, so what was that one? <laughs> that was 1991. <laughs> yeah, I know, and that's what I'm saying. It was, it was ancient times. Um, so, because, no, okay, I, wow, you go, you, yeah, we got to talk about your, um, your, your boxing writer uh, tenure <laughs> because um, you covered some really good, you, you covered the sport, you started covering boxing when I was becoming like a really hardcore head, when I really became uh, a, a diehard fan uh, of the sport. Well, then and, maybe I met you later in the 90s then because. Probably. Okay, because I, I started. I wrote for Boxing Illustrated from like eighty nine or ninety to like ninety four, I think. Yeah, and um, loved Bert. Bert was a great guy to me. And, he was the best. Yeah, yeah there you go. And um, then I was lucky, and I, I was working in sports radio, and um, I worked for ten years at the Chicago sports station called the Score. Yeah, and then um, I worked for uh, five years after that for Sporting News Radio. Yeah, I wonder if I ever called into the score like late '90s or early 2000s just to talk about boxing with one of the hosts. Oh, that that's cool. Maybe Johnny like, Hood. Maybe John. Maybe John Hood. Jonathan Hood. Yeah, because I know you know he he loved boxing too. Um, but yeah, they used to send me out for the fights through uh, the score and Sporting News. And I know we met face to face at at probably maybe a '90s fight. Maybe Chavez Frankie Randall the rematch. Uh, <laughs> No, nah, it wouldn't have been that. Okay, hilarious. <laughs> figure um, it, figure it out. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, no, I know we met face to face briefly, and um, yeah, I uh, so yeah, that's like I said. Now that's when I was writing was from like ninety to like ninety four. I keep trying to find this one issue of Boxing Illustrated. I didn't keep it back in the day, and I'm kicking myself. I pretty much got most of the ones I've got that I had decent pieces on in the years and the michael nunn james tony fight was one of the bigger stories i got to do for them I, and i i guarantee you that i read that story oh that's <laughs> yeah that's guarantee cool. you and then because, um yeah then there's one with I, tommy it's tommy morrison on the cover and one of leon spinks's sons leon calvin spinks huh. light heavyweight that unfortunately got killed really early yeah. in his pro career yeah, that was his first. Yeah, that was his first son named after him. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, I remember that guy because um, I went to high school. I lived in Springfield, Missouri, from 1980 to 1988. So fifth oh, okay. grade high school. So I, I came of age in Missouri, and um, I remembered that that son of Leon was a good athlete, and he was also a, a wrestler. He oh, was wow. a yeah, he was a state champion wrestler, um, and I believe, and this was pretty rare from from folks out of that part of St. Louis, but he was a good swimmer and diver as well. Interesting. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I covered his second pro fight. It was in Maryville, Indiana. I think he was killed after that. He was, yeah. Yeah, I think he was just 2-0 and as a, as a pro light heavyweight. That's exactly right. 
yeah. magic. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, I did a post post fight oh. interview with him, and then yeah, it unfortunately became a a memorial piece because he passed away, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was insane, but yeah. Um, no, Bert Bert was great. Bert really helped me establish myself here in in Chicago radio uh, because I was writing for him, and um, there was a a broadcaster from Chicago named Chet Kopic who had a big uh, big show, and he he he's been he had been doing sports for years, continues to do sports, and. Um, he would have me on because he was a fight fan. And then he got intrigued by the magazine and he's like, tell me about this Burt sugar. And I said, Oh, you guys would love each other. Yeah. And, and Burt came to Chicago for a fight and the two of them became fast friends. And then Kopic moved to New York during the mid to late nineties. And he and Burt just became better friends after that. And oh, that's- yeah. So, and it was really mutually beneficial where Chet's like, Oh, John's really good on the radio. And Burt's like, well, he, you know, he does good work for me, you know, uh, so good, you know, give him his opportunities and stuff. And it really opened the door for me here in uh, Chicago and broadcasting and stuff. So right. there's my short origin. And then, of course, I've been, like I said, as you know now, I'm doing this Word Balloon podcast where I talk to the comic book people. Yeah, and you've been doing this for a while, too. Yeah, 2005, I started a podcast. And, in fact, yeah. I, I keep kicking around the idea, and I know there's a million boxing podcasts out there. There are very few good ones, though. Okay. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Well, the same is true of the comic book podcasting. And I, I, now, I, don't listen, I don't listen to many of them. I, and I could have been listening to yours uh, years ago. Oh, that's uh, really nice. But I, yeah, but it's great. I can, I, I've got years of um, content to catch up with. <laughs> I've, enjoyed, I've enjoyed some of the recent ones. I enjoyed uh, the, the podcast with Tim Matheson. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah I was certainly good. Yeah, with Sven Gulli. Um, I love Sven Gulli. You know, I... I almost enjoy the pod, the the interviews you do with the non comic book industry folks more than the folks from the comic book industry. Although <laughs> I, I do I, I do I do really enjoy because I learn because I don't I I don't know the names of the more contemporary comic book creators like the folks who have come uh, you know come into their own uh, over the last 15 to 20 years like the folks that I'm really familiar with are the folks that were creating the comic books when I was collecting them sure. in high school and junior high you know so those well, I- folks that I, 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 those I, and I'm, and I'm also more in, so I'm more interested when you interview somebody like uh, who did you interview recently? And I really enjoyed it. And I, I'd never heard his voice before. Um, maybe. No, I got to listen to that one. He's one of my favorites. But uh, no. Uh, oh, why am I spacing out on his name? Be right or draw. Oh well, I mean, he he did uh, he did the shadow in uh, the eighties and uh, American Flag. Oh, and Howard, Howard Chicken. Howard. Yeah. Chicken. Yeah, and I and I. It's interesting because he's exactly the way I imagined he would be (laughs) when I was reading his stuff as a kid, you know. Um, And he 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 had a voice kind of like – he's got this like Alan Alda sounding voice, uh, (laughs) which I didn't quite imagine. But uh, no, he was a lot of fun. It was – He's the best, man. I love talking to him. He cracked me up. He's great. Um, you, you've done more than one podcast with him, right? So I got to find some of the old ones. Yeah, going back. Yeah, no, every couple of years I get him back. Um, yeah, even going back to either I think 2006 was the first time we talked. Yeah. And, uh, no, he's he's tremendous, and he's such a as you can tell from the interview, totally into just old pop culture. And, yeah. And I love talking to him about that stuff. Uh, and we've we've hung out a few times. We've had dinner a couple times, and 
meta conventions and stuff. No, I love him, and he's he's great because he knows I'm like a puppy dog around. Him. He's like, all right, calm down, calm down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I'm always very excited. Well, it's and, and yeah, man, I I'm going to a show, a convention in August in, at uh, Mohegan Sun, and uh, which is hilarious. I've never been to a, a, a convention that's held at a casino, so that'll yeah. be fun. But, and I've never covered a fight there, but the Mohegan Sun has been hosting world-class oh, yeah. boxing since at least the mid-90s. Definitely, man. No, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, that I haven't covered a big fight at. Oh, Chicago, I kind of figured. I'd like to one of these days. So that's, a, that's an untapped boxing market right there. Chicago? Yes, absolutely. I got to be honest with you, Doug. It's, it's really become a tank town. It really mm-hmm. bums me out. You know, Cedric Kushner had... Uh, we were one of his cities yeah. for a long time. Since he passed away, I have no idea if there is a big promoter behind any fights. But uh, Bobby Hitz who does some yeah. fights here, and Don Pasoli does some fights yeah. here. I remember eight count, eight count exactly. production. Exactly. Yeah. And now I think they're they're yeah. called Matador now. Yeah, they've changed. They changed the name, but yeah, no, I, I, I've met Dominic, and uh, I know of Bobby Hits. Bobby Hits also does uh, club shows out here in the, uh, Southern California. I had no idea. Oh wow, I had no it's, idea. So, and San Diego. He's uh, he's quite a character. He yeah. he he used to like me, and then um, one of the local cable stations when I when I was doing uh, covering the sport for radio and stuff, they they started having me on instead of him, and he got really really mad. Yeah. <laughs> boxing folks are like that. Some boxing folks are oh, like I'm, that. I'm, I'm aware, man. It's pretty yeah. funny. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I haven't seen him in years, and I haven't covered obviously for like 12 years. I think 06, like I said, was about the last year I think I did anything active covering boxing. Um, but yeah, I think he's probably calmed down since. But yeah, he was he was kind of mad. But really, man, no, Chicago's really become. I think Dom is trying to groom some young guys. But yeah, for the most he's, part, he's good at developing talent. He just is not able to take it to the next level. He usually yeah. needs the help of a major promoter to, to take this guy to the next level. But yeah, and he's that's involved it. Some, some some good fighters though uh, in, in past decades. I know he was involved with uh, David Diaz. Yes, world title. He was an Olympian from 1996. Sure. And uh, I remember David yeah. that light heavyweight Tavoris Cloud. He really he he built Cloud up into a contender, and then, oh, then Cloud. Yeah, I didn't know that. I knew about uh, Tavoris with King. I didn't realize that he started with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tavoris left. Yeah, Tavoris left uh, Pasoli for King, but Pasoli had him fighting regularly. Had him as a very active fighter, and that's when he developed. And then, as soon as he was um, ranked number one in one of the sanctioning organizations, I think the IBF, he left him. <laughs> of course, yeah. No. It happens all the time. It's not a big deal. Yeah. There, there was a there was a fight, and I I guess it might have been on TV last weekend or whatever uh, that Bobby was involved with, and there was a Chicago kid, and um, yeah, my my buddy Chet Kopic was complaining that uh, he's like, oh my god, boxing's dead, and he goes, you know, the kid was lucky to get a decision against a bum, and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, right now Chicago is really where like um, a fighter will fatten up on a bunch of you know crappy fighters and get a decent record and then go against a top contender or a champion and get his ass handed to him. Yeah. That's how it's been in recent years. Yeah. But I, 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 I know it's a market. I, I don't know about the talent being developed out of Chicago right now, but I do know the fans are there. Agreed. Oh, absolutely. Such, it's got such a, 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 a good ethnic mix. Absolutely. Um, yes. And, 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 and ethnic, 
demographics that you know traditionally support boxing from from Mexico to Poland um, and uh, a strong African American contingent that also support sure. uh, talented fighters. Um, and it's got great history. I mean, it, it's an oh, old please. fight now. Absolutely, yeah. man. No, no, and I know it well. And uh, got to meet guys like Ben Bentley, who used to be with the IBC, was the press agent for the IBC for years. Yeah, uh, I got to know him before he passed away, and a bunch of the old sports writers. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, and I and and truly, it's the boxing history of Chicago that you know uh, I think helped me get into the sport. My father and grandfather. I mean, I'm 53. My my father was a big fan. My grandfather was a big fan, and yeah. uh, I remember in the seventies watching Wide World Sports or CBS or NBC at my dad's bar. Uh, you know when they'd have an Ali, you know, replay an Ali close circuit fight or watching, right. you know, Sugar Ray, you know, come up and all the other guys from the seventies and eighties. So that's what got me hooked. So there wow. you go. Well, let's get into it. And actually, if you don't mind, we could even use some of this as uh, as we're talking and everything. Please do, and, and I will, and I will, uh, and I will welcome you now to Word Balloon. But I obviously have said it already in the introduction. But uh, yes, uh, editor in chief of Ring Magazine, it's a pleasure to have you on, Doug. And uh, yeah, it's 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 great to reconnect with you. I know we did it on social media, so thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me, John. Absolutely, man. Well, you know, and I'm uh, because of the last couple of years, it seems like boxing has caught a second. Well, at this point, a fifteenth hundredth win, <laughs> not a second win. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. From from when things were kind of really crapping out in the post Lennox Lewis years, it seems to have revitalized, and certainly not only in the heavyweight division, but in the other divisions as well. And that's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you. And it's a there are different players. We mentioned Don King. Don is hanging on, but kind of not the factor that he certainly was in yeah, his he prime. But yeah, he's not what he was. The kingdom does not exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, he was the man. He, he was def- he's probably the man of the 90s. He was the the promoter uh, in the late 80s, like at least uh, Tyson era, like Tyson's prime. Sure. Uh, Tyson really put him in that top spot. Uh, and uh, as strong as Bob Arum was in the 90s with Oscar De La Hoya uh, and young Floyd Mayweather Jr. and uh, a really talented stable that he developed brilliantly, uh, I think Don King was the preeminent promoter not only in america but in the world uh throughout the 90s but uh the 2000s there was a gradual decline with him but he still hangs on he's still around i saw that uh card a couple months ago on espn where he and aram got back together and i forget the name of the announcer on espn but they had a great video segment of them kind of talking about their promoter wars and uh it was it was really a pleasure watching aram and king yeah, that was, Mark, that was Mark Kriegel, who's a, an excellent right. – yeah, and uh, that fight was um, Jose Hernandez, who was Aram's guy, and he won uh, a vacant world title at 140 pounds, and Amir Imam, who was Don King's guy, talented kid from upstate New York, I think Albany, um, who, you know, he uh, – he did well. He fought. He fought as well as he could. He was just outworked uh, by the uh, the better technical pressure fighter. But that was a that was a good fight. And you were talking about the resurgence of the sport, and I think ESPN is part of it. I think Top Rank taking all of its talent, including some elite world class boxers like Terence Crawford and Vasily Lomachenko, uh, and a future Hall of Famer, uh, arguably an all time great like Manny Pacquiao. 
And leaving HBO and going to basic cable, ESPN, with all its various platforms, including the streaming platforms, I think that's given boxing a shot in the arm. Agreed. And I really think the top rank has been providing excellent cards. Uh, the Lomachenko-Linares fight for Linares' title is, good Lord, the, the best fight I've seen in the 2000s in a very, very long time. Uh, what an atmosphere. I was there. I was uh, at Press Row uh, inside Madison Square Garden. The garden wasn't packed to the rafters. It wasn't like a Felix Trinidad fight or okay. a Miguel Cote fight or even a Gennady <laughs> Golovkin fight. But um, he has a growing fan base. Uh, the Ukrainians came out in force and they had their flags. So you knew who they were and where they were in the arena. But they did, I think they did 10,000, and they made the noise of 20,000. Uh, so that tells you something. But, but most importantly, it was, it was boxing at its best. You're talking about two world-class practitioners, two guys who really know the ins and outs of the sweet science. And it, it was competitive, and it had drama, and Lomachenko had to dig deep. Uh, he had to win not just on that that amazing, creative, dynamic boxing style, but he had to show some grit and go for the kill to get that victory because, I, I like a lot of ringsiders, I had the fight up for grabs after nine rounds. Sitting at home, I had it the same way, and I'm glad you said that because much like uh, Miguel Ortiz, is it, or uh, the, the heavyweight, the Cuban heavyweight that fought Deontay Lu Wilder? What is it? Yeah. Luis Ortiz. Lu yes, yeah, Luis thank you, man. Um, I think Luis Ortiz... And I'm forgetting Linares' first name. Jorge. Jorge Linares. I think the two of those guys performed so well in their losses. I look forward to their next fights, especially Linares. Uh, God, like you said, punch for punch after nine rounds. I thought it was a very even fight. I think Lomachenko has found his weight class ceiling because as much as we've enjoyed him moving up in weight and continuing to excel in the fastest hands in boxing and what a – what an entertaining style, an aggressive, entertaining style. Uh, he had everything he could handle, though, with Linares. And I, I really think Linares can take that loss and not feel bad. And, and again, you know, market himself into a nice payday for the next fight because he was tough as nails. And I think I don't know what happens in a rematch, honestly. Yeah, I, I hope you're right about that because um, – Fighters who take risks and lose in entertaining, hotly contested bouts, they should have second, third, and fourth chances. You know, they sure. Sergey Kovalev, another guy like that. I think, and hopefully, boxing's kind of over the Mayweather era where it's a sin to lose. You know, it was, it, the 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 main goal and the only goal, apart from making money, was to get the W. I, I'm, I'm I'm hoping that boxing is over that. Um, and that network networks um, and, and promoters will give a second chance to um, world class fighters that make for really entertaining fights and 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 and, and prove to be uh, among the best against the best. If you prove to, if you can hang with one of the best, you know, like uh, a pound for pound rated fighter or an undefeated champion like Deontay Wilder. Um, fans should want to see you again. And fans generally do want to see those fighters again. So hopefully the promoters and networks um, take notice of that uh, and, and deliver on that well, because the, there's always going to be a winner and a loser. Of course. Unless you get a of course. Well, that, that's two, that's two <laughs> things. Well, of course we do, man. And, and, and yeah, and I, well, and that's a couple of things I wanted to ask you as an insider, Doug, because um, as you say, um, 
I, I, I don't know about the networks. And maybe, you know, actually, I think the networks, if, you, if you're a promoter, can convince the network, no, this is a good fight, here's why, and show enough real footage to, to convince the, the sports programmer that, yes, this is a worthy fight, even if a guy has two or three losses, hell, even five losses. You know the history of boxing when a loss wasn't this career-ender or massive setback. Um, but I do worry. I I, I don't know uh, because and and well, I'll get to the other point about what what I think concerns me about boxing. But first of all, yeah, the undefeated thing. Um, I know that the new platforms are out there now. ESPN Plus had uh, the uh, Bud Crawford Jeff Horn fight. Was it Jeff Horn? Yes, Jeff Horn. All right, I, you know, man, I'm shaking. I'm, it's it's not like it was back in the '90s when I knew every fighter and I was on Bert Sugar's <laughs> uh, Bud Riser ranking panel. And I could tell you all the flyweights and the mini flyweights and stuff like that back in the day. But, now you're doing well, though. Thank yeah. you. Well, I appreciate that, man. You know, I'm a... Names, at least, yeah. And you're watching. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, so they put that fight on ESPN+. Plus. Now, i got to be honest. I didn't get it because I knew, I knew Crawford was going to kill him. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean he's the, as you know from uh, the ring rankings right now of the pound-for-pound pound best, you know, yeah, he's, a, he's, he's another future Hall of Famer uh, that is so... In the prime of his career. Hey, Jeff Horn did a great job upsetting Manny Pacquiao. And that was a great, gritty, interesting fight to watch. Um, did, and did excellent ratings sure. for ESPN. Sure. But yeah, that's... I. I um, well, I'll get into the paper, the streaming thing in a second. But yeah, I uh, let's stick with the yeah, uh, undefeated records. And also the other thing that I think is killing boxing, and I think it goes hand in hand with this, is as you said, in case we get a draw, something's got to be done, man. They got to either go to uneven rounds. They have to go to 13 rounds which I'm sure everyone from a bad luck standpoint probably doesn't want. But something has to be done because I think the math of 12 rounds lends itself more to a draw than, than we used to see in the 15-round days. And, That's a good And it kills, yeah. every, it kills every fan when you see a, a great entertaining fight like Triple G and Canelo last year and yeah. it ends in a draw. That, it, it, and, and the only people I think that are happy are the fighters, managers, and promoters. Because that whole, well, we can get a rematch, and everyone's going to come back for that. And it's like, uh, not necessarily. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's know? true. Um, yeah, in, in the case of Golovkin Canelo 1, uh, competent judges are probably more important than uh, the number of rounds that the fights uh, go. Because uh, that, it shouldn't have been a draw. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a good, close fight. Absolutely. I think both middleweights gave each other a little bit too much respect. I don't think they're going to do that in the rematch, which was uh, just made yesterday for September 15 back in Las Vegas. Yep. Um, but, you know, back to the scene of the crime in, in, in some regards, and, and I'm just hoping the Nevada Athletic Commission puts the cream of the crop when it comes to the referee and the three official judges. Uh, because Adelaide Bird's scorecard of uh, one eighteen, one ten for Canelo was unforgivable, and uh, the 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 scorecard, uh, I think there was a, it was a split draw, correct? Yeah. So uh, yeah, majority draw. Yeah. I think he had a draw, but he scored a round that I think it was round seven that Golovkin clearly won. He scored that round for Canelo, which uh, obviously does not sit well with with hardcore fight fans. Right. So. Honestly, if that fight had been scored correctly, it would have been a close victory for Golovkin. And you could still sell a rematch oh, sure. off uh, of a close victory. Um, Agreed. 
Well, of course, now, of course, there's the, the, this rematch is going to be sold on the animosity between these middleweights and their teams and their respective promoters uh, and the controversy of Canelo Alvarez's uh, two failed drug tests. And I don't know if I like that or not, <laughs> but um, I do like the fight. I do like the matchup. And I do think that both guys can do a little bit better and make for an even more entertaining fight. And I was entertained in the first fight. I completely agree with everything you said. No, you're right about all of that. And, and yes, it was an absolutely entertaining fight. I did think Golovkin won a close decision. I think I had it 7-5 as far as that's, rounds. That's how I had it live, absolutely. Yeah, man. No, I Whoa. get it. Oh, that begs a rematch. Absolutely. It does. Well, and again, like Linares and Lomachenko, uh, I think that even deserves a rematch. And it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I'm sure... I'm sure Lomachenko necess- may necessarily not want another <laughs> fight with Linares. And also, you know, probably... Can- I agree with you that his ceiling is 135 pounds. He has the bone structure of a featherweight, and I believe he can still make 130 pounds, which is junior lightweight, right. and I, I believe he can still make featherweight uh, where they weigh in at 126. Sure. Uh, when he begins camp, he isn't a pound over 147, which is rare for a modern lightweight. Um, and I believe, you know, uh, Jorge Linares probably walks around at 155. Understood. And yeah, he fought. He fought that. You know, he weighed in at 135. And then on fight night, I think Linares was uh, a little bit over 150 pounds. And that's a modern lightweight. And that, that's, you know, Terrence Crawford. Heck, he would weigh in at, at 135. And, um, you know, he would fight at 155. So did Shane Mosley. So that's, you know, in, in an era of previous day weigh-ins where a fighter has more than 24 hours to rehydrate that some of these guys can come in really big and uh lomachenko's definitely a natural featherweight understood harold brazier the great fighter of the 80, uh, 80s and 90s i got yeah, to, i got to know him well Ultraweight, lots of fights yep. definitely over 100 pro bouts with that guy yep exactly and and i talked to him uh, as i got to know him and it, I, I would see him sweat to make a 140 and this is, you know, by, by the end of his career, he was finally fighting at 147. And I'm like, Harold, go up seven pounds. What's the deal? And he clued me in. And he's like, John, these, those guys are walking around at 160, even 170 pounds. When, That's true. And he goes, and they punch like they, they weigh 160 and 170 pounds. He's like, no right. thanks, man. I'll fight lightweights and welter, junior welterweights. Thank you. Yeah. No, he's right about that. <laughs> uh, in, in an era of same-day weigh-ins, it would have made sense for Brazier to fight at welterweight. But in an age of, of previous day weigh-ins, you know, which, you know, ironically, the, the, the previous day weigh-ins was, were, were um, they, they came up with the previous day weigh-ins to keep fighters from dehydrating themselves. But they're doing it anyways what by you- trying to make unnatural weight. And then, you know, they, they, you know, some guys, that's the strategy is to put on all this weight between the weigh-in and um, when they step into the ring. Sure. I'm glad – it doesn't always work out for them. Sometimes it makes them sluggish. Sometimes it slows them down and it dulls their reflexes and such. Well, that classic uh, Duran Leonard fight, the No Moss fight. I mean, is wasn't that one of the problems with with uh, Duran that he kind yeah. of gorged himself after the weigh-in? But that was the same day weigh-in, and that was the same story of when uh, Wilfredo Gomez fought uh, the great Salvador Sanchez at featherweight. Even though Gomez was coming up from 122 pounds to 126. Um, he was heavy. He trained really heavy in that fight, and he had a hard time losing that weight. Uh, and he drained himself. He was uh, like he was out on his feet on the scales, 
And in fact, the odds of that fight shifted dramatically after everybody saw the weigh-in. Wow. Because he favorite, Gomez was the favorite. Gomez was undefeated and won all his fights by, by knockout. And um, he was the betting favorite. But as soon as he stepped on the scales and everybody got a look at his face and how dry his lips were and how sucked in he was, all the money went to the fighter from Mexico City. Crazy. Is that fight on uh, YouTube? Can we find that fight on YouTube? Yeah, no, that's probably the, the signature victory for Salvador Sanchez. And it's not it, – it is or isn't on YouTube. Because he died at age 23. But he, he had uh, – by the time he was 23, he had 46 pro fights, only lost once. And he fought great fighters like Wilfredo Gomez and Danny Little Red Lopez. Yep. And I think his, his fi- the final fight of his career was against Azuma Nelson. The great Azuma who, Nelson, who was a kid at the time, yeah. Africa. Yes, yes. Now, so I, were, I don't know if you heard my question. Is 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 that Gomez-Sanchez fight, is there video of that and is it available – it's on, it's it's on YouTube. Okay, cool. That's man, I'll tell you, it's the greatest thing for for especially boxing history fans because so many great fights and I know ESPN uh for a time on ESPN Classic was even running some of those great old uh, 50s television fights from the Kinescope yes. days and you can see Chuck Davey and some of these other great names of the uh, Kid Gavilan and some of these other great names of the 50s out there. Uh, in in really interesting fights, and I and I love that, and especially uh, now I I seek those out as much as I do uh, whatever the latest fight is <laughs> to catch up on, and the the latest name. Those and those golden age fighters, those were the fighters of the fifties, which was really the birth of the TV age yep. for boxing. And I'm sure those guys fought in Chicago. Oh, absolutely, they did, man. Well, you know, and and Chuck Davey. Oh my goodness, yeah. Well, and Jim Norris of. Uh, the I, the International Boxing Club and, and Arthur Wirtz, they owned uh, a piece of you know they owned the controlling interest of Madison Square Garden, the Chicago yep. Stadium, uh, Detroit's big stadium, and St. Louis's big stadium. So no, you're right. In those early TV days, uh, Chicago as much as Madison Square Garden was where you'd find boxing on television. No question. Yeah, yeah. Chicago and Detroit, uh, another Midwest city, was also really big with boxing. Yep, absolutely. You know. Along with New York City, Philadelphia, Atlantic City. Not, not Atlantic City, but uh, Jersey City and uh, Boston. Absolutely, but, uh, yeah. West was, was alive with boxing. Actually, everywhere, you know, in the 50s. And your father, you know, your father and your grandfather, they grew up where boxing was um, one of the biggest professional sports. The only thing that could pros- possibly top boxing was baseball. Right, exactly. As a spectator sport. Absolutely, man. I, um... Well, and that, and that and that leads me to ask about streaming right now because uh, reading I love reading uh, the books that great old newspaper sports writers would write about boxing. And there was a guy in Minnesota at George's first name can't remember his last name right now, but he wrote then in the fifties how television had really changed boxing, and you couldn't get away with the hometown decisions or the draws that clearly were the fight was in the bag in some sort of way. Because when it was just a live event, you really only had the newspaper to rely on their account. And there might be a BS decision, but, you know, a a few weeks later, the local baseball team or football team or whatever was in season was going on, and the fight was out of mind. So you didn't really worry about it. But now on television, when you literally had millions of people watching back in the 50s, or, well, yeah, even then, you know, I mean, then, then you really had a very vocal audience where, hey, that was a bullshit fight. I don't care what you know what the judges said. Something's wrong there. And thankfully, back then, it didn't happen as seemingly uh, frequently as the years have progressed. 
I I was all for pay per view uh, back in the early nineties, TVKO and the like, and I yeah. thought that was a great innovation. Streaming kind of concerns me because, especially coming off of this resurgence, like things like you said, the top rank regular uh, basic cable ESPN deal. Um, but I but I have to say, I mean, and, you know, certainly HBO and Showtime continue to put out product, um, but the streaming kind of does. And I know also for the listeners. You're well aware. Barry Hearn, the uh, British uh, promoter uh, behind Matchmaker, is uh, kind of assembling a a new streaming service and uh, has a lot of money and is trying to entice American fighters and promoters to to jump on. But yeah, Yeah. I'm a a little worried about the marginalization that might happen with streaming. Yeah, so that's Eddie Hearn of Matchroom Boxing, and his father was Barry Hearn. Okay. (laughs) His dad, his dad promoted, his dad got involved with boxing. Um, as sort of uh, an agent for Chris Eubank, Chris Eubank sure, Senior, sure, uh, the uh, enigmatic uh, former middleweight and long reigning super middleweight champ, very popular in the UK. Oh yeah, uh, part because he had a he had a, a, a domestic rival in Nigel Ben, yes. who I was a huge fan of, the Dark Destroyer. Absolutely, because, man. You know, he lived up to his nickname. You know, he was a knockout artist. And he either knocked you out or you knocked him out. So what's not to love? And he didn't care. He didn't, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he was just a wild man. But, um, you know, Eddie learned uh, – uh, Barry Hearn represented athletes from all sports um, and uh, very savvy uh, and really a, 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 a brilliant agent. And his son is, is also very smart and has helped um, with the, the huge resurgence uh, of boxing – in the UK, um, and yeah, this this um, streaming service that he's aligned himself with is called uh, DAZN or DAZone, and they're talking about doing sixteen shows a year wow. in the US wow. on top of all the shows that Eddie promotes in Britain, and uh, they're signing up talent because they got a lot of money behind them. Reportedly, the deal stretched over eight years if if it makes it that long is worth a billion dollars so that's insane they're talking about you know over uh a hundred million uh dollar budget per year which hasn't been seen in boxing since the heyday of hbo in the 1990s um but i think with the streaming i think the networks are they have to throw their hat into this arena because they see the writing on the wall uh with the cord cutting and uh, I mean, they're just looking at the trends, you know, people. And they also are looking at, you know, how does the younger demographic view their view, take in their entertainment? And, you know, I've got two girls. One, they just they just had birthdays uh, in April uh, and they turned 10 and 14. OK. And don't watch TV that often. I understand. Yeah. It's 70 to 80 percent of their entertainment is from a mobile desi- a mobile device, what? and uh, the stars, the, the 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 like the comedians that they're into, uh, or the musicians, the singers, um, they're they're YouTube personalities. Agreed. They're, yeah, you know they're they're not, being, they're not backed by a network and they're not backed by a record company. It's not like it was when I was growing up. I hear you, man. They have to be, you know, the, 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 the network executives and obviously the boxing promoters. 
they have to have their eye on this and they have to figure, you know, the boxing fan of tomorrow uh, is used to getting their entertainment in a different way. And we got to get with this or get left behind. But for, uh, you know, folks from another generation like you and I, yeah, I'm, I'm 48. I just turned 48. Okay. Um, I, you know, and I got I I I, I got uh, ESPN plus. And I watched the fight on my phone while watching Showtime's <laughs> card. And I didn't mind it. You know, you know, a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have been able to watch an entire fight on a, on a, on a screen, you know, the size of a cell phone. Sure, sure. But used, I've become used to it now. Um, and it wasn't that bad. But what was really frustrating is I couldn't figure out how to get ESPN Plus on my TV. And I've got one of those... I've got a, uh, an Amazon Fire Stick. You know, I've sure. got one of those devices sure. that's supposed to put the internet on on the T. I couldn't figure it out, and I know it's something simple that I'm not doing. I'm just stupid, and I will eventually figure it out. But <laughs> is there is the ES, is the ESPN? Oh no, I am. I'm sorry. You know, yeah, I do know. Well, I yeah. Let me ask there's you. Side to it, and there's there, you know the, the upside. I mean, you know, the upside to to. The streaming services and and I've got so I've got ESPN Plus and I also just got ESPN's regular app right uh-huh. that's just the network um, and there was a fight card that I didn't want to miss that you know on the West Coast it's being shown uh, on ESPN uh, it's a Golden Boy card uh, from Fantasy Springs Casino in uh, Indio California and there was the co-featured bout that I wanted to see and I actually forgotten about it and I was online and I was on Twitter. And somebody uh, – it showed a highlight of a seventh-round knockdown. And I was like, holy crap, I forgot this fight was on. It's two prospects, right? Two undefeated prospects uh-huh. that were fighting each other. And I had no idea who was going to win it. And then I knew it was going to be a pretty entertaining fight. So um, I was able to watch it you know, at, at 6 o'clock on the, using the, the, the app, just you know, watching it on my phone. Um, and then I had to go to the, the – I had to go to the pharmacy, the pharmacy okay. to pick up a prescription that had run out of. And while I was in line, I was watching the main event. You know, <laughs> long line, and you know, and I couldn't conceive of this twenty years ago. That's a very good point. I understand. So, yeah, I mean, it, the changing, you know, media, the the new media helps boxing in some some ways. In, in some ways, it hurts boxing. And I'll give you an example with with what was then new media, uh, the internet. Um, I think it made a lot of boxing fans because it covered boxing on a day-to-day basis the way newspapers no longer were. By, yes. by, the, by the late 90s, a lot of newspapers were turned off by the sport because of the controversy. Um, there was Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield, the rematch in 1997, yeah. the infamous ear bite fight. Yes, sir. That a lot of, it turned off a lot of fans. Sure. The casual fans, uh, and but it also turned off a lot of mainstream media, and then there were a lot of really poor decisions, um, you know, such as or controversial decisions, such as uh, when Felix Trinidad beat Oscar De La Hoya yes. in '99, or when Lennox Lewis had to settle for a draw against uh, Evander Holyfield in their first fight. That's right. Those fights '99. Yep. But there was a lot to sort of push away the mainstream media. Um, at a time when the internet was just starting to gain its legs. And I took advantage of that. And that was really my entree into the sport as far as covering it. Um, and a, a, lo- a lot of younger fans that were into it, you know, that, you know, were either 
online while they were in at school, you know, or just bored at their jobs and the, the, the manager wasn't looking and they get on, you know, their favorite boxing site or whatever. But, um, it was helpful in that way and that it was covering the sport. Like, you know, like it actually suddenly had beat writers, um, which it had lost gradually, um, during the nineties. But then it also, you know, once people were able to, 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 you know, stream video via the internet, they were, you know, of course, the, the pay-per-view industry got hit because people were finding, you know, uh, you know, foreign television feeds of fights. And, you know, it was kind of like in the 2000s, the Internet became like the black, the cable black box. Yeah, like um, Napster. It was almost like Napster. Yeah, like Napster for music. Exactly. So in, in that way, it kind of it, 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 it hurt the industry um, in, in, in that regard. So, you know, it's a double edged sword. But as far as the streaming platforms, uh, they're a pain in the butt. But. I, you know, I, I, I can, I can understand why the networks and the promoters are going in this direction. That's a good argument, man. No, I, I think you make a very cogent argument, and I, I, you're right about that. And in fact, uh, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about uh, last weekend was it last weekend or two weekends ago? We saw the return of Tyson Fury. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I'm you. laughing too. <laughs> you, you were not impressed. <laughs> not at all. Oh, my, oh, you read my, you read my tweet. Yeah, crack me up. <laughs> Dude, I'm sorry. When he beat Klitschko, yes, he was the busier fighter. And Klitschko, like I said, I, hey, he had a lot of personal baggage. You probably know more about that than I did yeah. watching it. Um, but, he had baby mom drama. Exactly, yes, with uh, with Hayden Panettiere, yes. Getting old, and it's probably, you know, if you look at Tyson Fury, it's hard to take him seriously. One, because of his personality. Two, just because of his body type. I mean, he's not like a formidable-looking giant. Well, that's true. He's 6'9", but he's gangly and awkward. And he fights awkward, too, but he makes it work for him. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I think I described that fight as somebody clowning their way to the heavyweight championship. Absolutely. That's what he did. I, I think maybe he got into to Klitschko's head. I didn't think he was clowning. I, it looked to me like he was afraid of him and waiting for maybe. that punch that never came. From Klitschko, right. but also in this uh, comeback, and as you were describing watching boxing on your phone, I'll confess I, I wasn't sure, but I checked on YouTube, and they had the full fight against that Swedish guy that Fury fought, so I got to watch the full fight. And much like the first fight with Klitschko, I, I just, this is a guy who's very lucky, uh, well, and again, he's, he was mismatched, the guy that he was fighting, there was no way in hell he was going to beat him. But as, yeah, the, as you know, getting him through a full camp and getting him into the ring, true. Yeah, the victory right there. Yeah. Like, let's get this guy back in the ring finally after two and a half years. Absolutely. But he was fighting, you know, he has no leverage on his punches. It looked like no. he's on his tip. You know, he's fighting off his toes. It yes. looked like a lot of times. And yeah, and I'm just like, it's funny. I read, I read on the <laughs> rings uh, website, uh, your rankings for each division and, yeah. and even your, your column about, the deliberation of where to put Tyson Fury now that he's back. He is the linear heavyweight champion, and given that he has not lost his title in the ring, I respect that argument as I did with Michael Spinks 30 years ago. Uh, God, wow. it is literally 30 years ago. Oh, my God. Uh, yep. <laughs> 1988, yeah. Oh my, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, it literally is 30 years ago. But uh, So, yeah, and even and even Foreman, too, in the, in the uh, late 90s, or early 2000s, when Shannon Briggs fought him and everything it's like hey man the guy hasn't he, he hasn't lost until he loses in the ring and right and um that said though 
yeah, I'm like, this guy sucks, and I'm sure when he is in with a real live body, I would love to see Luis Ortiz make mincemeat out of, of Tyson Fury. I don't think that fight will ever happen. I'll stay away from Luis Ortiz. Listen, if this is this is going to be a money grab, I think. What what they're going to do is, is keep him active. He's already got a fight scheduled in Belfast two months from now. Yep. They're going to have him fight every two months. That's just long enough to have another camp. They're going to work gradually work the ring rust off. Um, I see him sort of get his footing by the fourth, the third and fourth round against the cruiserweight. Um, his stamina was not tested. I think so. I think that's the next step. Get him in there with uh, a real heavyweight. Uh, you know, not not anybody good, a journeyman, a gatekeeper right, type. Right. But put him in there with somebody who can at least take him ten rounds. So test the conditioning, the stamina a little bit. Um, get him some quality rounds, a little bit of professional resistance, then put him in there with a fringe contender or just a name, some like the aforementioned Shannon Briggs, who somehow is still around. Yes. He's more like a pro wrestler than an actual prize fighter these days. <laughs> but he knows how to promote a fight. Guy's a natural promoter. He was once the linear champ heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, a long time ago, yep. you know, more than twenty years about twenty years ago actually, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, just just keep him busy, and then as soon as there's an opportunity to put him in there with Anthony Joshua, which is a huge fight in Europe. Yes, um, you you can't build a stadium big enough to pack all the fans that would pay big money to witness that live, um, or put him in there with Deontay Wilder. That's a huge fight. Those sure. two, those guys could sell a fight to somebody who's never watched boxing. Well, yeah, it's, like, it's McGregor and Mayweather all over again. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? Wilder won't be in there trying to carry Tyson Fury the way Floyd Mayweather obviously was against uh, Conor McGregor. Absolutely, so it, it'll you know there'll there'll be some intensity uh, to that fight because Wilder won't have it any other way. Yeah. So, anyways, regardless, those are fights where Fury will make like thirty million dollars. So exactly. that's the end game right there. I hear you, man, and I and I I yeah. I mean, again, fight fans know we've seen this movie before. And and that's and again, that's why like the McGregor fight, it, it is so interesting the reaction to the McGregor fight because so many non fight fans are like, Oh, he did good, Colin did good, man. Or Connor. Connor did great. I'm like, yeah. No, he didn't. Like, he looks horrible. Yeah, of course. Well and poor, no, I, poor I haven't seen that fight. I've watched the first round and then I watched highlights of the stoppage. Cause after watching the first round, I was like, This is embar this guy yes. is he doesn't know how to fight, he doesn't know how to box. Exactly. Duke the dude could fight, no doubt about it, but he, he's not a boxer. Right, exactly. And it was painfully obvious, and it was also painfully obvious that Mayweather had to be careful with him and carry him. So it's not a real contest. Exactly. No, it's, I, again, I know you're a couple years younger than me, but I'm sure from a, if you didn't remember seeing it, at least by reputation, when Antonio Aoki, or however you said his name, the Japanese wrestler, fought Ali, and I saw that. Uh, back on Wide World of Sports back in the 70s. And yeah. it was ridiculous. And it was a it was a freak show. This was obviously a little bit more of a a real of like fight per se in air quotes. Uh, the the well, thing I thought was worth watching. Was a boxing match. So it was one one set of rules, whereas Ali versus Anoki, um, who really wasn't a mixed martial artist, he was a, a professional wrestler. Right. That was kind of the – in fact, there's a book. That that basically declares that as the first mixed martial arts fight, um, at least you know sure. uh, of um, you know high profile. Yeah. 
on the world stage, so to speak. But it was a, a boxer who was who was allowed to fight under boxing rules against a pro wrestler who was allowed to approach that fight as a pro wrestler would. So it was weird, you know. Yeah, and you had a guy. <laughs> You know, kicking at another guy's legs, you know, who wasn't going to get on the ground or wasn't going to try to to wrestle him, you know, grapple or anything. Right. right. So it, it it didn't work. You know, the styles didn't mesh. Agreed. Well, and also the only reason why I would suggest watching the fight, uh, and it was it was embarrassing to watch McGregor and Mayweather, but it was so obvious that Floyd. You know, it's like this is good that it's your last fight, Floyd, because he was so flat footed. And <laughs> let's hope so. <laughs> I, well, I I hope so, and I and I bet if you really watch the tape. Man, he, he that's the first time I saw Floyd May, Mayweather and it granted he won that fight handily, carry you sure. know, dictated the pace, but he looked old. He looked old. Oh, he's getting old. Listen, he's 40 years old. Right. Right. He's 40 years old and he'd been out of the ring for more than a year, True. so obviously no, he he did not have his reflexes. Listen, if Mayweather was in there with Terence Crawford or um Errol Spence Jr. Yes. I know you're familiar with Errol Spence, right? Oh, yes, of course. He's going to fight Saturday. He's fighting the Saturday, as a matter of fact, in, in Texas. That that kid's a straight-up killer. Mayweather gets knocked out. I'm with you. I'm with you. Crawford, Crawford will punish him and stop him late. And uh, I, I think I think Spence just steamrolls him. I think Spence stops him in six or seven rounds. I agree with both of those uh, predictions, yes, if, if he were to continue. Um he will continue, but he'll just keep fighting guys like Conor McGregor. <laughs> man, I, I, I hope not. I really hope not. But it, whatever. I mean, again. But that's the thing. I think those kinds of spectacles hurt the sport as much as they are obviously giant paydays for the fighters, the promoters, and all involved. But, yeah, those are the ones that I think really do hurt. Where, again, somebody off the street will go, well, that didn't look like a regular fight. And that's that's what sucks, and that's the biggest difference from when I was a fan, a young fan, and the biggest fights that occurred in boxing. And I'm talking this is this is during the the closed circuit era. Sure. Okay. It's still the, it's still the, it's still the closed circuit era, um, but the huge fights that were on closed circuit were you know maybe a week later was on HBO, uh, and then uh, two weeks later it was on uh, ABC, CBS, or NBC. Agreed. Uh, and, and and there were still world title fights that were even in prime time. I think the last, I think Larry Holmes versus uh, Carl the Truth Williams was the last time uh, a heavyweight championship fight uh, until very recently, and, until maybe like uh, one of Deontay Wilder's PBC fights. That's right. um, that was like I think I think I think Holmes Spinks was 1985. So there were still there were still some prime time network fights. Uh, and by the way, the first network fight that I remember watching uh, was Muhammad Ali versus Ernie Shavers. Oh, fantastic! Sure, forty years ago. Oh my that was god! Oh my god! Or maybe seven. Maybe it was forty-one years ago. Yeah, I was going to say because yeah, the uh, the Spinks fights were seventy-seven or seventy-eight. So that's yeah, it was right. before that. Yeah. Well, and that's so, the infamous fight where. Uh, Supposedly, uh, Ali's camp had a TV, <laughs> and they were because they were posting the judges' scores round by round. Live, yeah, they were doing uh, live scoring, <laughs> which never works. <laughs> never works. No. Yeah, but no, that's a great fight, and I remember that Larry Holmes Carl the Truth Williams fight too. Oh my God, man, we are aging ourselves. Well, as far <laughs> curious though, okay, so 
Okay, so for me as a, as a boxing fan, I, I got into to boxing and comic books around the same time. It was the it was the late seventies. Okay, and what got me into boxing was Ali. And matter of fact, it was watching um, Ali's pre-fight antics with Howard Cosell. Sure, Cosell interviewing him, and Ali was making fun of Ernie Shavers. And I thought this guy, and I I knew I had heard of Muhammad Ali. He was already in history of books. But I'd never seen him live doing his shtick with uh, Cosell. And I thought he was hilarious. And I, I couldn't wait to see the fight. And I watched the fight with my dad. And my dad was saying Ali's getting old. And he was telling me how <laughs> Ali should have lost to to uh, Ken Norton sure. in, in the rubber match. Which, you know. I, stadium, yes, sir. I'm like, what? Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ali was my guy. And, um, and Ali winning. It made me, you know, filled me with pride. Like, oh, cool. The guy that I like, that I think is just awesome, it, he won the fight, you know. Sure. And my dad, I was right and my dad was wrong. That's the <laughs> ultimate hardcore fan jollies, right? Sure. <laughs> so, and it wasn't long after that that I realized that there was this guy named Sugar Ray Leonard out there. Um, yeah. and I, I think I was aware of a Leonard, Leonard from the, the, the 76 Olympics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, watching him progress all the way to his first title fight against Wilfredo, uh, Wilfredo Benitez, yep. Yep. Um, he was amazing. To me, he was he was Bruce Lee in boxing gloves. Ooh, I so like that. so Ooh, I like- <laughs> the, these guys introduced me to the sport, and it was basically Ali, and then it was Leonard, and then there was everybody else, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. but through Leonard, I was learning about other really talented boxers um, who are now all-time greats like Roberto Duran and Thomas Hearns and uh, Benitez. Um, and when when they left the sport, I think Ali retired in 81 and uh, Leonard retired in 82. I just, it, it broke my heart and I wasn't into the other standout fighters the way I was into them. And comic books kind of filled that void. Oh, that that's was fun. my oh, escapism. And comic were so good at that time, the team books. Uh, and I've heard you say on other podcasts that there's two streets you take, you know, back <laughs> in the day, you were an X-Men guy or you're a, a Legion of the Superheroes. That's right. I, I love the X-Men and I love the Legion. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and, um, both those team books in the like 81, 82, 83, they were just excellent. Uh, and, and they really sucked me in and I started collecting at that time. And I didn't get back into boxing uh, until uh, Leonard came back against Marvin Hagler, and that was that. such a yeah. hotly anticipated fight. And it was one of those, you know, one of those fights that you know not only transcend boxing, but tra- transcend sports. I remember watching the build up to that fight on Good Morning America uh, and reading about it. I would go to the library. Sure. Uh, you know, obviously this this is this is way pre-internet. You know, it was years before the internet really came of age. Uh, and if you wanted to to read the views, particularly on boxing, uh, uh, outside of your hometown, you had to go to the library and read those newspapers from the other cities. That's right. I would go to the public library and and read the columns of the the the, the sports columnists or the boxing columnists, uh, columnists from uh, New York City and Atlantic City and Las Vegas and, and Reno uh, and a few other places. Um, and uh, and I was following it, you know, a good six months before the fight happened, and that and then I, I that got me to 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 purchasing the Ring magazine, um, in Boxing Illustrated. That's cool. so I'm curious 
So, uh, you know, by, by, by 89 and, and 1990, by the time uh, I got into my college years, yeah. I graduated from high school in 88, um, I was a nutcake fan. I not only had to watch every boxing match that was televised, I had to read everything I found <laughs> on boxing. So I stopped. I didn't have enough money to collect comic books and buy every magazine. And if you remember, uh, Ring Magazine had sister publications like KO Magazine uh, and, and uh, World Boxing, yes. and Boxing 88 or Boxing 89. Yes. It was Boxing of the Year. Yep. Uh, um, and I had to get those. And there was Boxing Illustrated and there was something called Boxing Scene. That's right. So I, I bought them all. I had to, I I had to have way, everything and any book that I saw uh, I had about boxing. I had to buy them. Uh, and then at this time, um, all those um, authorized and unauthorized biographies of Mike Tyson were coming out. And those were awesome because they weren't just they didn't just chronicle Mike Tyson's rise to prominence. Um, but they also covered just it was written by these uh, boxing writers. Uh, they, were, they were beat writers like uh, Phil Berger. Yes. And, uh, you remember him? I do. I sat next to him for the Tyson Frank Bruno rematch. And I he he was banished to the upper upper rafters because he pissed off Don King. Never he yeah yeah he pissed off yeah he pissed off King yeah he was a he was a really good writer sweet guy. Uh, yes I had cancer maybe late yes late nineties or early two thousands which is really tragic absolutely but, but he had his book out I think it was like called Bloodsport Mike Tyson and yes. and boxing something you know uh, had a very sensational name and then there was Ho- the the great Ho- Jose Torres who was a disciple of, of Customato and a Hall of Famer in his own right and a, a great Puerto Rican fighter, yes. uh, uh, you know, who was also a writer. Uh, and he, he uh, I think his was Fear and Fire Yes, uh, in the world of Mike Tyson and boxing or whatever. But I remember purchasing these books and, uh, and, and Thomas Hauser's um, authorized biography of uh, Muhammad Ali. Yes, I think I a day and a half. Oh, my God. What, a, what an incredible book. I, and Hauser, before that, Sword, The Black Lights. No. His book about the the, the, yes. the politics of boxing, yeah. That's the bookshelf. Should be on every boxing fan's Agreed. bookshelf. Yeah. Agreed. So um so this so I, I I'm so these are the years this is late late eighties or whatever. So this is when you started covering boxing? Yeah, you know, my and I'll I'll give you a little bit. I've I've talked about it before, not on Word Balloon, but other podcasts. I um I was in music radio at the start of my radio career. And uh, station change formats. I, I I did it in college, did it in high school. Worked at a professional station. Station change formats. I'm back in Chicago, and a friend of mine who was a sports writer said, "You know, you should try writing boxing because there's enough decent fights coming through town." Um, Duran fought a guy named Jeff Lannis uh, here in Chicago and everything. And uh, Foreman in his comeback tour yes. was didn't fight in chicago well he fought bobby hits but i don't think they fought in chicago but he was making yeah. appearances who's now a promoter yeah yeah <laughs> oh, no, i know bobby well um so yeah you know i started um i i i noticed that uh boxing illustrated had in their uh agate section where they just gave results they had results yeah. from a couple local fights but no detail so i contacted bert sugar and said hey man I, i'm happy to do this he said great write me some stuff so I did, and he's like, "I like what you're doing. Keep it up." So that was really fed my ego, and really, um, I, I didn't get back into radio proper for a, like a year or two after uh, being down at school at Illinois State, Bloomington, Illinois, and being on a couple professional stations down there. But then I started appearing on a couple uh, Chicago radio sports shows as this correspondent from Boxing Illustrated, 
and that was kind of my door to get back into um, to to broadcasting. And Bert Bert Sugar and Chet Kopic were the the two guys that really kind of helped usher me into Chicago radio. And finally, in '92, yeah, I landed a job at the uh, All Sports Station, the first All Sports Station in Chicago that's still here, the Score, and um, started working for them. They started sending me out to fights, and we would you know go and cover Showtime and HBO fights through the '90s. And uh, yeah, but I was but I was still writing for Bert, and I was kind of I know you'll remember this name, Jack Obermeyer. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, Camp Jack. Jack. Yeah, well, Jack, Jack was known for in recent years, but he was what a what a what a prince, what a sweetheart. Well, and he was and he was known for for my listeners who may not know the name. He was known for really like getting in his car and you know covering the tri-state area, however many states it took for him to go and cover every little club fight that he could. And that uh, was a specialty. yeah, and I was doing the same thing to a much smaller degree, but I would go. No, to I Andy, respect. I would. That's the. That's how you learn. Yes. That's how you cut your teeth. That's how you learn to be a real beat writer. Absolutely, man. And so, yeah, I would. I would cover fights in Michigan and in Indiana, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Illinois, and I'd just yeah. make the rounds and everything. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of how I got started and started writing for Bert. That helped me get the job at the Score, and um, I stopped writing because. I was covering it on radio, and so I didn't need to, you know, do it there. I just did it on radio, and that. So, uh, yeah, and uh, up until two thousand six, and that's when I stopped. I, I, I went to. I, I know our our paths had to have crossed because I my, the first boxing matches that I started covering, and that was out here in the Los Angeles area, was nineteen ninety six. Okay. And I started in ninety seven and ninety eight. I started houseofboxing dot com. Oh wow! With the part- yes. You remember the I house? I do, absolutely I do, sure. So I started that with a webmaster named uh, Gary Randall. And we just began covering the local cards in the L.A. area. So uh, uh, the late Dr. Jerry Buss had a promotional company called Forum Boxing. Sure. And had, he had he would do shows three times a month. Wow. And they would be at the the Forum, the, at that time called the Great Western Forum. Sure. Just being the forum or the fabulous forum now, Uh, and at uh, what was the Pond in Anaheim, uh, which is now the Honda Center, Uh, and they would do shows in Las Vegas at the Tropicana, which is long gone. Wow! Uh, And uh, and then uh, Aram in '98 brought shows, monthly shows, back to uh, the Olympic, the Grand Olympic Auditorium. Wow! one of the oldest, you know, and storied boxing venues uh, in America. Absolutely. You know, that's where I got my first look at Floyd Mayweather in 1997, just one year out of the the 96 Olympics, and the late uh, Diego Corrales and a lot of other talent that went on to to make some noise in boxing. So just those local shows, I was able to kind of really learn and and cut my teeth. You know, and I, you know, prior to that, I'd covered some club shows. Uh, But by 99... Uh, I was covering more of the bigger shows in, uh, you know, starting with Mike Tyson's comeback, actually, when, when Mike Tyson fought Francois Botha after serving <laughs> a one-year suspension after biting Holyfield's ear. I remember it well. Go on. This fight. Uh, and, and so starting around then, started traveling to Vegas because I was, I was getting credentialed, so why not? Um, and I was, I was doing a lot of writing uh, for the fight programs, particularly Don King's fight programs. Oh, wow. Yeah, because um, the the internet, what you know, I wasn't I wasn't making any money from House of Boxing. I understand. So <laughs> part time, I taught journalism part time at Santa Monica College, 
and um, and then I freelanced. Uh, and a lot of the freelance work was the fight programs. And Don King was prolific in the late '90s. He had all these shows, and I would I would do uh, multiple stories in those fight programs, and they paid pretty well. Uh, so I made in meets uh, ends meet that way, uh, and then it, at the start of 2000, um, House of Boxing was bought by a manager, a boxing manager, the guy who managed Shannon Briggs, a guy named uh, Mark Roberts. Okay, yeah. At a, a publicly traded company called uh, Worldwide Entertainment and Sports, and he bought House of Boxing. And suddenly, bo- covering boxing became my, my full-time job. So covering boxing and uh, maintaining that website uh, became my full-time job. So that was, that was in, at, at the start of 2000. Um, so I was covering all the fights, including fights on the East Coast. So I'm thinking, I'm, I, I bet you we covered some of, the ma- some of the same fights, either in Las Vegas or in New York City. Probably. Probably. Uh, Maybe in the Detroit area. Did you cover when Mike Tyson fought uh, Andrew Galata? I was not at that fight. Uh, I, I no. Uh, I two, yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't able to attend that fight. But certainly yeah, Galata being from Chicago. Yeah, we covered it. Detroit. Yeah, that was uh, Auburn Hills. That, that was at the Palace. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Mayweather fought the next day in Detroit. He had his first fight at lightweight and had a tougher. Tougher than expected time against uh, Emmanuel Burton. That's amazing. You no, know, you know, honestly, by the time I was uh, working for the score, I'm betting, like you said, it was probably one of those king cards. Uh, okay. In the in the very late '90s or in the early 2000s. Um, yeah, because uh, like I said, I know you know uh, it was maybe a day or two before the fight, you know, in the press room or something like that. That's my guess. Okay. So, but I used to do a lot of radio back then, and I wonder. I, the score sounds really familiar, and I recall doing a lot of sports radio from you know from the Midwest sure. area. I'm sure. I'm sure I was on at least a couple of times yeah, on the score. I, I wasn't hosting, but I was reporting. So uh, well, yeah. So and well, I hosted on the weekends, and um, I, I don't. I, I don't remember having you on one of my shows. But I'm betting my buddy uh, Jonathan Hood, who now is. On the ESPN is, Chicago station, he's he's called J Hood now. <laughs> you know, he goes like, by J Hood, but that's cool. You know, he's a yeah, he's a great guy, and he's 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 probably your age. I think late forties and everything. And you know, like I said, I'm five years older than you. Um, but yeah, it's uh, no, honestly, I, I've enjoyed your writing, and I and I really am happy that you're uh, doing great at Ring. And I wanted to ask about Ring's. I mean, Ring is still a, a magazine, a paper magazine, but it's also yeah. a digital product as well. Beyond uh, print digital, of course, uh, video as well. Right, right, yeah. So the the Ring uh, is a, a website, which is the Daily News, uh, which includes some some video content. Um, we need to get some podcasts going. <laughs> yeah, well, doesn't Mike, Michael Woods? Doesn't he? Doesn't he do a podcast for you guys, or is that his independent podcast? Writers, but his podcast is separate from the site. But I need to. Bring I need to, and I've been talking to Michael about that because he's excellent. I, I think he's a, a really good uh, broadcast talent. I think he's he's yeah, he excellent. Does a good job. He does a really good job. Yeah, and and I, and I enjoy his style of writing uh, as well. But so the the, the web destination is is RingTV.com, uh, and then there's the digital edition of the magazine. Um, and we're, we're, I, I think in the next month or two, we're, we're putting out a new app where it's going to be a lot easier to to access the the digital version of the print magazine but the print magazine is still alive and that was when i when i um when i was hired as the 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 editor-in-chief 
of the publication, I think in late October, that was my number one goal was to get the magazine back to uh, a monthly okay. every uh, and to get the cover price down because it was uh, eight ninety five and and that's just that's just too expensive for a publication if you do happen to you know you know browse past it in at at, at, at your local Barnes and Noble sure. or you know Seven Eleven where wherever wherever you find magazines these days. I understand. <laughs> I understand. That, that's another challenge we have sure. is, is the. Di- but yeah, it's it's been. I mean, it's been a fight. I mean, the, there was somebody with Golden Boy who, thankfully, is no longer with the company, and and the magazine has been owned by Oscar De La Hoya's Golden Boy Promotions since 2007, I believe, um, which brings its own sort of challenges. But there was somebody with the company that didn't believe that anybody read magazines anymore, and he just wanted to get rid of it. I, I think after my first magazine, and I was like, I fought him. I fought him tooth and nail. Like, no, you cannot do that. Wow. You know. No, because people still buy the magazine. It's very special about having the magazine, um, w- which makes the rankings special, um, which makes uh, you know the 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 Ring Magazine Championship belts something special. Agreed. You know the fact you know in our rankings we we rank everybody. You know we rank the whoever holds the various world sanctioning organizations. You know. Um, and yeah. when these guys hit each other, when like the, the top two or the top two, th- uh, two or three fighters face each other, you know, the ring titles on the line. So, you know, you know, generally speaking, the, the, the guy who holds the ring magazine belt, they're like the cha- they're like the real champion. Agreed. There's, you know, that's clarity. You, you guys provide clarity yeah. when when the governing bodies will arbitrarily uh, strip somebody of a belt. And, and it's always I mean, I remember when. Uh, Floyd Mayweather fought uh, Angel Manfredi from uh, the Indiana and Chicago area, and it yeah. was and that was they gave a ring belt to the winner of that and said no, this is the genuine whether it was yeah, one thirty or one thirty five champion, right? The junior lightweight champ, and 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 I think that year Mayweather was Ring Magazine's Fighter of the Year. Yes, and um, he got a belt for that too. There you go. Which is something I've reinstated. As a matter of fact, I've got it here at my place. I got to get it to him at some point. But Vasil Lomachenko was was Ring Magazine's Fighter of the Year for 2017, um, and so he's got a belt for that. That's cool. Uh, yeah, that's cool. And we're for the pound for pound too, which is something that Ring Magazine started when when uh, Pernell Whitaker should have beat Cesar uh, Chavez, right? <laughs> 93. <laughs> But, you know, in the court of public opinion, he won that Absolutely. fight, right? He became the, you know, I think I think Chavez at that time, prior to fighting Whitaker, Chavez was number one pound for pound. Yes. And Chavez outclassed, I mean, uh, Whitaker outclassed Chavez and everybody saw it. Doesn't matter what the official scorecards were. So Whitaker became the number one fighter pound for pound and um, the ring magazine bestowed a belt to him. Um, and uh, that was, I remember that was very popular at the time. I remember, uh, May, uh, uh, I almost called him Mayweather, Whitaker, because they're both defensive right, geniuses. Right? But <laughs> Whitaker, Whitaker would fight anybody, God, his, <laughs> and he wouldn't get old. His uh, fights you know, with he, Buddy McGirt were right, among my favorites. I don't know if you remember those. I was at as a fan. I was at that first fight, Mayweather and uh, uh, Whitaker and McGirt. Yeah, oh, that's that was at, I, in New York City because I was a student at uh, Columbia. I was I was uh, going to grad school there oh, for at journalism school. Yeah. One of the great. Well, I got the only time I got to see Whitaker live was unfortunately near the end of his career when he fought Felix Trinidad at the Garden, 
And um, you know, that, that was a bold stand. That was Trinidad at his best. It was. And, I, and you know, it's funny. I was sitting uh, with uh, Mike North, who was a radio host. We were sitting in the stands, and we were around a bunch of uh, Trinidad fans. And one guy called out and said, come on, Felix, beat him. This guy ain't shit. And I turned around and I go, <laughs> now, wait a minute. That's Pernell Whitaker, man. And, yes, he's old. The guy had a hell of a career. He's, he's going to lose this fight. Give him a little more respect. And the guy's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, if, even if you didn't like Whitaker's attitude or his style, the fact that he never ducked anybody. He was willing to face the best, even when he was past it. Yes. And was it was not living a Spartan lifestyle, if you know what I'm saying. He was a heavy drinker, and um, he didn't avoid cocaine either. So I mean, he, and and if you just look at his body, I mean, he didn't even look like an athlete. But the guy was like five foot six, maybe five five and a half. A little dude, no power, um, and fighting a guy like like Trinidad, who would rehydrate into a, a middleweight, uh, and was a bona fide puncher. And a bona fide Hall of Famer in his own right. Uh, and, and, you know, Whitaker fought with a, a, a broken jaw in that fight. Oh, I didn't know that, or I had forgotten that. He sure did. He sure wow. did. Wow. I uh, yeah, I was lucky that I, I only went to the Garden uh, to see fights a handful of times, but every time I was so excited based on the history of the place. And uh, yeah, I was uh, really man, sixteen years of covering boxing uh, when I was doing it actively, and I loved every minute of it. It was fun and. Um, Really, it was when uh, Sporting News Radio moved to L.A. and they pretty much didn't take anybody from Chicago with them when they made the move. That's what that's what ended my uh, my boxing coverage. And by that time, I felt like there were so many uh, websites and podcasts already doing boxing that I'm like, yeah. you know, I, I just felt, uh, especially being in Chicago, I didn't feel like I had the credibility to continue to cover it uh, because again. Uh, working at uh, both the score and sporting news radio, they would fly me out to fight. So I did feel like, well, at least I'm covering major fights yeah. all the time. But yeah, that just kind of ended. And and yeah, like I said, really from like 90, really like the last 11 years, it was primarily broadcasting that I was doing as far as covering fights. So. Right. But it was, it's great that you started a, a, a comic book. Yeah. Pod, or a pop culture. I mean, you don't, it's not just a comic book world, um, but it's great. Started, you started Word Balloon in 2005. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, you... As like a, like a podcast pioneer? Because I get that with the internet. I get that with, with boxing sure. websites. Like, hey, you were like a pioneer with that. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just did an interview where, where the interviewer said, you're a podcast pioneer. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. I, I suppose. I shrug. Yeah. I mean, because again, and I don't know. Um, well, certainly the ring of, you know, the, first of all, also, I mean, Hasa Boxing in itself, and again, I used to read you on Hasa Boxing as well. But, uh, you know, now being associated with the ring and everything, great brand name. And, and certainly, yeah. so, so boxing fans, when they saw that online, I'm sure were like, oh, absolutely, of course I'm going to follow the ring. There's this great, you know, almost 100 year tradition with the ring, coming, coming close to 100 years. Nat Fleischer, yeah. I don't know what year Nat Fleischer started the ring. Or Nat Fleischer, was it Nat Fleischer? Yes, that's, who, that's the founder. And he was the editor. I think. I think there's only been in the history of the rings exist, which is almost a hundred years. I think there's only been six or seven editor in chiefs. That's insane. Bert Sugar being yeah. one of them, obviously. Yes. Yeah, Bert, and that's that's so awesome that uh, that you uh, covered the sport uh, for for Bert with uh, Boxing Illustrated okay. because the ring and the Boxing Illustrated those were the two pillars 
of boxing coverage, uh, at least in regard to magazines in the 80s. And, And I thought, actually, I used to like, I used to respect the rankings, the Budweiser rankings, as you referred to. Yes. Budweiser sponsored rankings of Boxing Illustrated. I like those rankings. I agreed with those rankings more than I agreed with uh, Ring Magazine's rankings. <laughs> you know, I was incredibly honored when Bert asked me to be one of the uh, people on the on the ratings panel. And um, I've I've told this story before, but I'll tell you. Back in uh, Univision, used to uh, do a great boxing show called Mundo del Box, mm. World of Boxing. And, and, right. the, and the anchor of the show, and it was all Spanish language, was, yeah. was this guy Norberto Longo. And I don't know if you ever encountered him back in the day. The name. Okay. Well, he was – He he came they – they had a Univision fight card in Chicago. I want to say Mort Charnick was the promoter or involved in it in some way. But it was a really good card. And Norberto Longo – and I never remember Jesse's last name, but his color man was a younger younger guy named Jesse – and they did a great show, and I really loved watching the show. And I had like a high school Spanish understanding of the language, but I, you know, again, boxing is a visual sport, so you can figure out what's going on. And I, I approached him and I said, "Senor Longo," and he said, "Yes." And I said, "Listen, I just want to tell you, I work for Bert Sugar, I work for Boxing Illustrated, I'm on the Budweiser panel. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your show because you show international fights that I can't find anywhere else. I would not be able to f- cover." Uh, the great super flyweights and uh, the various right. Asian fighters if it hadn't been for your show. So I, you're right. Yeah, you're right. So, the, in the 90s, if you wanted to watch a fight from Japan or a fight that was sub-featherweight, it was Spanish-language television. Yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely right about that. So I'm, I'm telling him all this, and he's nodding. And I go, so really, I, I thank you for what you do, and I, I'm, I'm glad you're here tonight. So and I didn't realize, but he didn't speak English very well. So he goes, "So you like boxing?" And, I, and uh, Jesse, Jesse's next to him, and he's laughing. He goes, "Hang on a second, man!" And he translates everything I said, and it really was like a minute or two of language. And he goes, yeah. "Oh, oh, mucho gusto! Thank you very much. That's very nice. Very." Nice. <laughs> so we got the message, and after that, I saw him a few times uh, in the in the early two thousands at. Uh, at fights I was doing for Sporting News Radio, and I'm like, Senor Longo, and he's like, ah, hello, my Chicago friend, very nice, and I'm like, good to see you, man. So he was a sweetheart, but yeah, man, and like you said, absolutely, and you know, growing up in Florida and everything, um, was it Florida, right? No, actually, so uh, the 70s was uh, in Columbus, Ohio, Okay. Okay. because my my parents were grad students at at OSU, Ohio State University, and in 1980, we moved to Springfield, Missouri, because my dad job at uh the university there he, he, and he's he's that's been his only job too isn't <laughs> same yeah he's had the same gig since 1980 um he's about ready to retire as a matter of fact yeah uh he's uh, a psychology professor very cool man no that's great yeah yeah i mean and again pre pre uh when when um well, and it was during the 90s and stuff, so yeah, cable was up and running. But like you said, no, Spanish-language television as today. I mean, that's the great thing, and I, and I always tell uh, people that are interested in boxing, and it's like I'm really glad that boxing is you know, playing on you know, Al Heyman and his premier network and, and everything else that's going on in boxing and the resurgence of boxing. I'm like, but Spanish-language television, they've always been there, and they may not have big names, but you know you're going to get a good competitive fight. Yeah, uh, and they're very knowledgeable, the, the, the fans – um, you know, particularly the fans from Mexico and Puerto Rico, 
they appreciate all boxing, uh, but they're very knowledgeable fans. Right, and they demand and, they demand competition. And and I know live, and I'm sure you experience it as well. If it's a BS fight, they're the first ones to tell you and start booing. And my favorite is when they they throw coins at the ring. That always cracks me up. <laughs> I saw that with the Chavez fight that I had to cover. They throw bodily fluids into the uh, ring. Yeah, unfortunately, you're right about that. Yikes. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I witnessed that at the uh, at the Olympic. As a matter of fact, <laughs> mid nineties. Yeah, that's like wow. Okay, that's that's a passionate fan. So you're an X Men fan. Were you were you ever a DC fan as well, or pr- pretty much Marvel? Um, both, but probably a little more Marvel cool. than, than DC. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Before I started collecting comics. And before really the, the the rise of the direct market mm-hmm. and the comic shop, you know, and you know, when you go to the supermarket, like back in Ohio, there was a Kroger's across the street from us, and they had uh, you know a spin rack. Fantastic. You know, comics were a quarter or thirty five cent, oh, yeah. and it was the you know it was the it was the Marvel comics that I would buy, and it was anything from Ghost Rider. To the Avengers, whatever cover, you know, or Godzilla. A lot of times it was like the, you know, you know, it was Godzilla or, uh, you know, uh, the toys, you know what I mean? Micronauts or whatever, whatever, whatever cover really caught my attention. That's what I would buy. Um, but there were also these um, little digests, these little books. Remember those blue ribbon digests sure. that uh, DC would Absolutely. put out? Sometimes yes, I do. The, the award-winning stories, it was like, uh, you know, um, a compilation of the best stories of the previous year. And that was really interesting. And I would get those. Um, I, I just liked that it was kind of – it was small and you know, easy to carry around uh, and, a, and a little more sturdy than, than you know, the regular yeah. comic yeah. book. And so – and those would introduce me to like Jonah Hex stories – that were a little bit, you know, obviously a little bit different, you know, like, you know, some cowboy stories or some of those uh, World War II stories or whatever. So a little bit different from the superhero stories. But I would buy them because sometimes on the cover they would have like a legion of the superheroes, right? Sure. And these were reprinted from the Silver Age. So this is the legion or, you know, maybe not the – maybe maybe or even like early 70s, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so – Late sixties, early seventies, but I had missed them because I'm I'm getting these. I'm finding these in the in the the late seventies, and so it's um you know so it's 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 Superboy in the Legion, um <laughs> and the the writer is Jim Shooter. Yes, when he's you know, a kid. A kid, right? Like a thirteen or fourteen year old kid. I love that story. Yes, <laughs> is Kurt Swan. Yes, I love Kurt Swan. And yeah, me too. And I had, and I, I remember I'm watching, you know, I'm, I'm reading uh, a story of uh, the Dark Circle or, uh, you know, the, the first appearance of the Fatal Five, yes, right? Yes. Looking at a, a sequence, a Kurt Swan sequence of uh, Mano fighting, uh, who's the guy with the atomic axe? The Persuader. Oh, nice. <laughs> And I'm just looking at it, like like three panels, right? Like three or four panels. And, I, and it's, it's it's interesting. I really had an appreciation for Kurt Swan. And it's funny because by the time I, I I I started hanging out at comic book shops, these guys were old. And um, you know, I think you know the superstars were you know Walt Simonson. 
uh, and and uh, Howard Chaikin and John Byrne and Frank Miller, definitely Frank Miller. He was a superstar, right? And so these guys, you know, these Silver Age Superman artists, you know, people made fun of them or whatever, but they were still around. Sure. And each at this time, you know, artist that I really liked, the comic book creator that I, I really liked was uh, was Dave Cockrum. I love Dave Cockrum, and absolutely. I, I, I was first exposed to Dave Cockrum with those those Legion reprints yep. that I was reading in digest form, uh, and it used to piss me off when you know folks you know the you know the whatever the the older comic book fans uh, were you know saying ah these guys are old now and and their artwork it's it's kind of outdated or whatever and yeah Cockrum he's okay for a year or two on a book but then get him out of there bring in you know bring in a better artist like John Byrne or whatever remember he used to burn my hat I wouldn't say anything because they were older than me you know and but I I you know as as an 11 year old as a 12 year old I really appreciated those guys totally well you know so when when Cochran returned to the X-Men, I started collecting them. Sure. So his second run on the, you know, I was I was a little bit too young for his first run. Mm-hmm. For his second run on the X-Men, um, I was I was there and I started collecting the comic and I started collecting the uh, Paul Levitz, Keith Giffen, um, Legion of the Superhero yes. Superheroes at the same time. So I was there for these wonderful runs. So there was with with Dave Cockrum. I think there was uh, the start of the Brood Saga, uh, sure. and that finished up with Paul Smith. And I loved his Paul artwork. Smith was fantastic, absolutely. Yeah, and that was Chris Claremont in all his glory. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, but Levitz and Giffen. I mean, they were an amazing team. Um, and so I remember, you know, collecting the the return of Darkseid. Yes. You know. Yes, and Don. The DC Universe for a while and the the Great Darkness Saga, yeah. and I was hooked. And as I said, around this time, you know, eighty two, eighty three, eighty four, um, my heroes in boxing had left. And you know, if I understood boxing a little bit more, I I, I would have appreciated Larry Holmes. But I was mad at Larry Holmes. He humiliated <laughs> you know, and, and I would have appreciated Marvin Hagler or Thomas Hearns, but Hearns was the the rival. To, uh, to to Sugar Ray Leonard, yeah. and people were you know people were saying things like you know hey if Leonard stuck around and fought Hagler Hagler would kill him, and I didn't know if they were right or wrong, but I didn't like that, so I didn't like Hagler. Funny. You know? Funny. So I didn't appreciate these guys when they were really in their primes and you know at their absolute peaks, you know during their 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 respective title reigns, but certainly. By the time I became a hardcore fan, looking back at their careers, I, you know, I, res- I rediscovered well, sure. uh, Pat and Holmes <laughs> and, and Tommy Hearns and uh, Hector Camacho, sure. you know, who I missed and, and all these guys. You know, I, I was able to, to find their fights on VHS tape. And, of course, I was reading about them uh, in the pages of Ring Magazine and every other boxing magazine because I had to have them. But in the early to mid 80s. I was a boxing collector, and the 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 magazines. I'm sorry, the the comics that I didn't collect. Um, I I I I read them because either my my brothers collected them, like my brother collected the John Byrne Fantastic Four. Oh, that's terrific! Uh, sure, love run, and um, you know I I had a friend who collected the Teen Titans. Of course, you know Mark Wolfman, George Perez, Teen Titans. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. so we we read. We couldn't afford to buy all of them. Like now, yeah, that's that's the that's the, that's the problem. So I have disposable income now, so I just buy everything. 
and I'm literally running out of space in my house with all the boxing magazine, boxing books, and comic books and graphic novels. Um, driving my wife insane. I but uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to get an I'm gonna have to get an office, out of home office, and just move all this crap there because <laughs> there's no room in my house because I now I I just I have to buy everything, and the thing is I was really out of uh, you know I stopped collecting comics around 1987. Okay, I sort of paid attention to it for the the late 80s, but by the 90s I was out of it. You know sure. I I was full time just boxing fanatic, and I was in college. Um. And then, you know, I, I was working by, by late uh, 1993, and I just couldn't, I, you know, I would, I would pay attention. I would go back to my old comics, and it, it had changed so much. And that 90s style, I just, I, I didn't, I, I couldn't get with it. I felt it. the same um, way, Doug. I felt the same way. I missed the 90s, but there was some good stuff. Of course stuff, there was. But oh, I, no, you're right. And I missed a lot of really good stuff uh, during the first half of the 2000s. And I don't remember when it was. It was probably 2006. I'm at a coffee shop. Uh, uh, my 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 firstborn was like a, a you know a two year old, and we found you know a babysitter or whatever. And so we were on one of our few date nights, and we decided to go to some comic shop that had comedy or something like that in Culver City, mm-hmm. and they had they had like a lounge area with like a bookshelf and on the bookshelf was uh one of those essential marvel essential sure. compilations of um the first run like uh whatever the first couple of years of the Stanley Jack Kirby Fantastic 4 oh, that's perfect and i was never really that into the fantastic 4 but i just hadn't seen or opened a comic book in so long and this thing was beat up <laughs> and you know, we were waiting for the for the comedy show to start. So, you know, we're just having coffee and talking with some other couple or whatever. And I picked it up, and I swear, like I just got sucked into that thing. <laughs> and you know, you know how the essentials the the essential series is. There's no color either. Right, black and white, real it, crappy paper. I, yeah, and this was beat up. Like there were pages falling out of it. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, I forgot how awesome this was. And I was like, uh, the next time I was in a Barnes and Noble. I found a section with, you know, the essentials and the trade paperbacks and graphic novels. And I was like, holy shit. (laughs) I got to rediscover this. I got to go back and catch up on all this stuff that I missed. And I was able to do do so through the trade paperbacks. And I loved it. And uh, this is still pre-social media. Mm -hmm. There were like um, message boards where people talked about comics and all. And so I learned about Grant Morrison's run through the message boards and everyone, you know, everyone was talking about how awesome that was. And it was awesome. But tell you what, I I, and everyone was they were crapping on whoever was writing the uh, other X-Men books because Morrison was like the new X-Men. And then there was still Uncanny or another. Yeah, Yeah. there was there was X-Men, which was Morrison. And then they started calling it the new X-Men. And then there was the Uncanny X-Men. Chuck um, Austin, I'm betting. Chuck Austin, right. Everyone was saying how much they hated it, right? How stupid it was, right? I didn't care. I loved it. I agree with you. <laughs> like, I agree with you. Both. It was, you know, it's just it's it's just pure escapism for me. I don't I don't approach comic books with any kind of like ultra critical eye. Like I don't approach <laughs> it the way I would approach boxing. Because I don't cover it. It's not my profession. Um so I'm, I'm like I'm a I'm I'm a fan and I you know I, I 
you know, I collect a dozen X titles, um, and I'm loving, you know, uh, among the DC books, I'm loving uh, Doomsday Clock. Oh, me too, man. I'm uh, glad to hear that. Yeah, the Green Lantern Corps, uh, Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern sure, Corps, sure. Uh, and Mr. Miracle. I'm a, I'm a fourth world fanatic, so anything, anytime DC brings back one of those uh New Gods characters, one of those Jack Kirby Fourth World characters or books. I got to check it I'm out. You. You know, even if I don't think they nail it right or whatever, uh, I still purchase it. I, I love it. Um, what would you, you think of the Commandy Challenge that they just wrapped up? You know what? I was with it for about – you know what? I, that's one of those monthlies where – I should have just waited for the the twelve issues to run their course and then just read it as a trade paperback. Sure. Because at some point, I just kind of lost interest with I it. I, st- I still bought them every month. <laughs> I hear you. Like, like I'm when it comes to the fourth world, I'm like I just have to have it. You know, I'm just curious to see different takes. But I didn't. I I I, I don't know. Maybe there just wasn't enough continuity with the, the handoff of. Uh, of the creative teams uh, for me to really follow it closely. But uh, at some point, I just kind of lost interest in the middle uh, and then, you know, got back into it towards the end. And I was the same way with the um, the Mike Allred Bug series. Yeah, I, you know, on, uh, I liked that, and, and that certainly had trouble finding an audience, so I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I was into it in some ways, but I wasn't totally into it. But I still supported it, you sure. know. I still I bought them. Um. But I'm loving the Mr. Miracle. Tom King I'm and loving. Mitch Garretts, man. No, they're great guys and great creators. Yeah, and I know you've you've spoken to – have you spoken to, to Tom King recently? Um, it's been a couple months since we talked. I think I'm around yeah. March. February or right. March is the last time we talked. And we stay in touch. I'm waiting – you know, I'm really waiting for uh, the Batman wedding to happen, Batman and Catwoman, of course. And, and yeah. also um, he's got this new thing that he's going to put out in the fall called Sanctuary – and that's the last conversation we had where he was starting to preview that, where it's about oh. superheroes that kind of have post-traumatic disorders from their adventures. Right. And, and I think it's I, an amazing idea. And also, as I'm sure you already know, Tom, with his own uh, it, military intelligence experience with the CIA, yeah. is kind of the perfect guy to write something like that. Yeah, and that's and, and so this is, this is independent. This is not Marvel oh, no, it's or, DC. or DC. It's DC. See, oh, that's it. Okay, that's going to be fascinating. Yes. And funny, it's something I always thought about in approach, uh, particularly to covering sort of uh, you know when when it's the the non cosmic powered superhero. If you're talking about a street level superhero yeah. like a Batman or a Daredevil or whatever, somebody who's not a mutant with a healing factor <laughs> like, like Wolverine, sure. it's like these guys get knocked around. Like they get knocked out on the regular, yep. like you know, and, and and they experience some crazy stuff, right? You know what I mean? World, world changing, reality changing stuff. Yes. Yeah, to the to out the outer realms of the galaxy and back, yep. you know. Yep. But on top of that, there's just the punishment that they take fighting crime, <laughs> and you would think, you know, beyond you know just their bodies breaking down. There would be some sort of neurological disorders, and, and I'm even talking about the pugilistic dementia, but uh, the, yeah, the post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something that boxers uh, also suffer from. Understood. Yeah, man. Yeah. Agreed. And also, um, it is fascinating. I completely agree with you. The um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for Sanctuary, and also I was wondering, um, 
if uh, I'm, I'm guessing that you've probably seen your share of superhero movies and TV, but specifically, I really loved the first season of Black Lightning this year. And one of those first yeah. episodes... There were three episodes of it, but I, I, I do DVR it. And it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to find some time to binge it. Or uh, it's going to be one of those things that I watch when I'm having lunch. Sure. <laughs> at home and whenever I can, you know, find 30 minutes to sit down and eat or whatever. Sure. And it's 30 minutes. To, this is, it's an hour long. So, yeah, you know. No, I get it. It's incredible. And one of those early episodes after, you know, he come. it's kind of the dark night of Black Lightning. Where you know yeah. it's him coming back, and right. and I loved after one of his first encounters, you see him and he's home and he takes his shirt off and he's all bruised and he's literally like hunched over the bathroom sink, just like, yeah. oh man, this is you know it's like I haven't done this in a long time and I'm feeling every punch right now and it was so yeah. real and I love that and it's dude I'm telling you if you if you I mean I love the original '70s run of Black Lightning, Tony Isabella and Trevor Von Eden, and I love how they just very easily weave that into saying you could you could almost call that 70s run of black lightning in the late 70s uh the backstory of the tv show because it fits so well and okay. even the bad guy tobias whale is his bad guy in the 70s and everything oh yeah i know i know whale is uh yeah tobias Whale is a, a character from the comic books but i've never read that that initial run in the 70s and i should check it out they, I, you know i i became familiar with uh black lightning with batman and the outsiders sure. And I enjoyed, yeah. I, that's I, I'm. I can't even remember if that's one of the ones I just read while I was at the comic shop, <laughs> or if I bought it uh, because I did. I, I uh, it was Jim Aparo yep. who was one of those, uh, you know, Bronze Age, Silverish. Well, I guess probably more Bronze Age, but early Bronze Age. Oh yeah, no, um, he, he started in the very late '60s, but I would agree with you. His <laughs> prime was definitely that Bronze Age period. Yeah, the seventies, yeah, and yeah. I and I and I remember his art on on Batman books, um, but I, I enjoyed his art. And um, at some point, um, Alan Davis, of course, took and I love I love oh, Alan God, Davis. Yeah. Caliber was a book that I I collected just because of Davis's art. I understand. You know what I loved about Alan Davis, especially when he was drawing Batman. Batman could smile, and it didn't look yeah. goofy. And and I no. I remember one of my and it was kind of a silly story. It was either, I think it was for Detective Four Hundred at the time. They had Sherlock Holmes yeah. show up, and he and, <laughs> and because of his uh, he kept you know he he watched his diet and he was like literally over a hundred years old in the story. And they're like, well, he developed some sort of from bee jelly, royal jelly from bees, a way to kind of prolong his life and everything. And at one point, uh, he's got the pipe. And Batman offers to light the pipe, and he's like, "Oh, it's merely for show, my my friend. I haven't smoked for years." But he's telling his story, and they in the panel, Batman's just smiling, and it's like, "Yeah, man, of course he's going to smile. He's in front of one of his mentors. This is a great moment." Hey, now I, I think the grim stuff. I think I think that's part of what pushed me away. Understood. I mean, part of it was boxing and just going to college and you know getting older sure. and all. But another part was that everything had to be extreme and and, and gritty and and I remember when um, the X Men title, the Uncanny X Men had the the Mutant Massacre, yes. and uh, it upset me because Colossus killed in that right. Oh, I forgot. Go That's on. Yes, death situation. Right. You know yeah, they're yeah. in the more tunnels and his teammates are getting cut down maybe getting killed and and he reaches out and he breaks some dude's neck right this uh 
hurricane dude, the dude who spins real fast and throws, you know, uh, throwing stars and knives and stuff like that. Um, but he breaks the dude's neck, and I was just like, you know, you know, Wolverine's the killer. It's like it doesn't. You got to have balance with the team, you know. And it's okay to have members of the team who don't kill, and members of the team who are not that prone to violence or whatever. But I was just. I remember that turning me off and just thinking like, man, every comic has got to be like, you know, it's the hero has to be uh, have to ha- has to have this berserker side or has to be like, you know, like the Punisher or something. And it's like, no, nah, you know, the Punisher is the Punisher. Wolverine is Wolverine. Let them let them be those characters and it, have different characters and all. But of course, it just, just remember, it just kind of pushed me away well, again. The success of the success of Watchmen, the success of Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> I loved, which I loved, and I was. We all did. Yeah, I was with it, and 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 I loved those series, um, but I didn't want everything to be like that. Now you know, and I don't (laughs) know how you felt about it, but one exception that I did like that got dark was Legion's five years later story, where it was kind of this dystopian look at the Legion that Giffen and Levitz did. Yeah, I heard you talking about that on a recent podcast, and when was that? Because I don't remember. It was well, you know something. It was probably right around the time that you checked out. It was like it was like eighty eight, eighty nine, something like that. And and it picked up again. It was like something had happened, some big climax where the Legion was disbanded. You picked up with Cosmic Boy. He didn't have his powers. Right. He was kind of like checking in on the rest of the Legion, and it was great. Some turned bad. Sun Boy turned bad of all people, and it was. And then just out of the superhero business, right? And they're just kind of like. Living regular yes, lives. Yes. Yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, yeah. See, I loved it because it it was an interesting contrast to the positive nature of the of the Legion in general, and uh, and also in the uh, in, after uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, I thought it got interesting for a while too, where yes. their continuity because of the decisions where Superboy, you know, no longer was part of the team, and Brainiac Five was obviously really upset that he lost Supergirl and they had their relationship and everything. It was got all yeah, those. Yeah. Oh no. Levitz. I Levitz really had the touch when it came to writing the Legion. And even a couple years yeah. ago, uh, they, they brought the Legion back and Levitz was writing the Legion yeah. again and it was coming home and it was great. And it, I was bummed yeah. that it didn't find a bigger audience. And I think that's no, what it ended. But yeah, it's bad, but no, he was yeah, he was perfect yeah, for it. Yeah, he yeah. knew those characters. Yeah. He understood those characters. Same with Giffen as well. Giffen, and I said this to Tom, maybe maybe Tom and I were talking about it. Uh, or no, it was Jeff Lemire. I think Jeff Lemire and I were talking. And um, Giffen has kind of become like a, not a quite a J.D. Salinger recluse, but he really, uh-huh. he doesn't want to be bothered at conventions. And he'll like, yeah. and he rarely shows up at him anymore. And I, and I totally respect that. Because he's been in the business as long, and he's hey man, they all deserve yes. their private lives. He doesn't need it, and it's it's a shame. Yeah. I got to ch- I got to talk to him once when I first started Word Balloon. Had a great conversation with him. Talked a lot about when he was working on the Justice Society back in the early seventies, and uh, yeah. just a lot of fun. And just he's such a funny guy. And uh, yeah, and yeah. Now it's like yeah. he's kind of done with interviews. Well, as far as podcasting goes, I like Ambush Bug. Sure. I was an Bug fan in the mid '80s, and um, what was the the Justice League that he was involved oh. with? The one that was kind of funny. It had Booster yeah. Gold, and it had Gardner, yeah, and it yeah, had Justice League Europe and Justice League. Uh, it was just called Justice League. Well, that yeah, it was um, 
Jam, Jam, yeah, Jam, uh, Jam uh, D, uh, D Mateus and uh, and and Giffen. Yeah, how to pronounce that name? <laughs> Say it again. Uh, D Mateus. D Mateus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark is his first name, and uh, yeah, Jam. He's he's great, and man, he is such. He was he's become a word balloon fan, and it, I got to tell you, it is so gratifying. As I'm sure it's the case where your favorite boxers who maybe are trainers or still attached to the sport or when you get a chance to talk to them. It's so nice to talking to these comic creators that I grew up reading and really appreciating their work. And a guy like Mark Dematis, who Dematis, who who comes back to me and always is like, oh, yeah, hey, man, I heard that talk with Lemire. That was a really good podcast. And I'm like, oh, that's so nice that you like something I've created. I'm like, that's a nice yeah. change. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So And Chaykin, Chaykin's another guy like that. And and really, I, 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 I'm so thrilled that these the, – and Walter Simonson is another very kind man who is incredibly nice to me when I see him and stuff. And it just – it means the world to me because, yeah, I mean, you know. He seems like a really nice guy. He's truly – Walt had that – he always had that, uh, that aura about him. Walter and Dave Gibbons, I always say, are literally the two nicest men in comics. And Dave Gibbons, another That's one. My God, you know. Two of my favorite artists, and they can. I know Walter writes, but yes. does Dave Gibbons? Does he also Dave write? Does write absolutely, he does. And and yeah, oh God, and Dave, good lord! I mean, every time I see him, I, I have to be careful because I don't want him to think, all right, you know, I'm Kathy Bates and I'm going to hobble him or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. But I, I'm yeah. such a fan, and he he always will surprise me with, oh John, I happened to hear this interview from a couple months ago, and you did such a good job, and I'm like. Okay, thanks, Dave. I gotta go now because <laughs> I'll start crying. If <laughs> I just ease, because I do, you appreciate their work, and I mean, my God, Walter, especially. I go back to the seventies reading Walter's stuff. Uh, he and Marty Pasco did an incredible Doctor Fate uh, story. It was only one issue, but it was so mm. good. And Marty then uh, subsequently wrote a backup Doctor Fate feature in the uh, in the Flash, and Marty's mm. become a good friend as well. And that's why it's like. Oh my God! I I just can't believe it. Jerry Conway, another great name from the seventies and eighties. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean it's no, it's it's really nice. and well, I felt I am, the same way in boxing with the the times I got to talk to Muhammad Ali and, yeah. and Larry Holmes and and I, I, all the seventies yeah. heavyweights except Frazier met everybody except Joe. Really? Yeah. Like I mean, uh, you, are you talking about the the champions from the seventies? Yeah, well, the heavyweights. I mean, I, I had many conversations like, with George. I'm or sorry. Ken Norton. Ken Nor- yeah, Ken Norton. Ken, Mike, I'll tell you my Ken Norton story. He he had written his autobiography. He came to the score to promote it. And uh, it was interesting. And I don't know why, but he kind of gave me angry eyes for a second. But I'm like, you know, Ken, because – what's that? <laughs> he had a surly side. He did. Well, but, you know, and obviously he had that very major accident and had yeah. to uh, – if people don't know, he was driving on one of those winding California roads – and and, yeah. and drove his car off a cliff, and and yeah. could have died. And, he should have died. Anyone else would have been killed by that accident. Well, and had to. I mean, I, I forget like how many limbs were injured, but also had serious brain damage where he had to yes. relearn how to speak. Yeah, and he had a and he and he spoke with a slur, and I think a lot of people thought that was from boxing, and it was exactly. Wasn't. He was very articulate, and in fact, was a very good commentator. Exactly. And, he paired up very nicely with the great Don Dumphy. Agreed. And there are so many YouTube videos of him doing color commentary. Yeah. He was great. He was very, absolutely. And so I said, you know, and I said the same thing. I said, Ken, people might may, may, may mistake your slur 
from coming from boxing. And I know that's not the case. And I said, your greatest victory happened outside of the ring when you were able to rehab yourself. And at first he was giving me this dirty look. And then I started talking and his face softened. And I said, truly, yeah. I said, it's the greatest, one of the greatest accomplishments in sports that you are now able to come back now and tell your story again. And I said, I, I'm really glad and congratulations on such an amazing recovery from such a tragic, you know, near death experience. And then he opened up and he was, <laughs> he was fine. But yeah, at first I'm like, yeah, man, no, no, no. I know the story and I want you to tell the story, please. And then he did. It. He was great. He was fantastic. So yeah. And Larry Holmes, great, funny as hell. George, I love George because there was the HBO George, as you well know, who was kind of silly. Yeah. And then I'd talk to him in the press room about a fight, and he'd get very serious and analytical and knew what he was talking about as far as I, – I remember him just going into detail how much he loved Eric Morales going into one of the Marco Antonio Barrera fights. And, and wow. so I turned off my record, and I said, I like this George Foreman. How come that guy's not on HBO? And he's like, no, no, no. They got Merchant to be the expert. He's got a producer in his ear. He's got a producer in his ear. And it's, the same thing would happen with Sugar Ray Leonard when he did commentary for HBO. They were a little bit too heavy with the, you know, they, they have a producer and a director right. and some kind of truck who's never boxed in his life telling him, telling him what to say, being, being a little bit too much of a control Agreed. freak. Agreed, man. That's so are you, are you doing, weren't you doing Showtime stuff for a while? Are you still doing that? I, I do um, commentary. I've never worked for Showtime. I've done um, I've done international broadcasts for HBO, Great. and uh, you know since the Ring Magazine is owned by Golden Boy Promotions, I've done a lot of their shows. So I'll do like the uh, the, the international television for um, some of uh, Golden Boy's uh, HBO cards Great. or the, like the online pay per view. For the the HBO pay per views, like so, I did I did the call with a guy named uh, Beto Duran, um, the uh, the Golovkin Canelo fight, the first one. Oh, great! I did the pay per view wow. for that. Okay, cool. Uh, um, I've done actually I've done a lot of Canelo fights. Uh, in fact, the when Canelo fought Amir Khan, um, we were joined by Lennox Lewis, and that was a treat working with I him. Met. I had the pleasure as well. I met him briefly uh, and met Riddick Bowe. Boxer worked with us, um, did the broadcast with us for the uh, Golovkin Canelo pay per view. It was uh, Kevin Kelly, the Flushing Flash, the former champ from Flushing, New York. Great fighter. Loved him. A lot of fun. I, uh, uh, man, Bert, Bert introduced me to Hopkins in the 90s, um, you know, in the midst of his middleweight defenses, well before the rematch, after the first fight with Roy, but in the mid 90s. And he, he smacked me in the gut and he's like, get this guy on. You know, he's really trying hard to. Like, be better on, on radio and TV. This was late 90s, 98, 99. And I said, yeah. hey, man, no, he seems like a really sweet guy. And Junior Jones was a nice guy. I met him a couple times. And, yeah. um, man, you know, my favorite thing was I was at, I believe it was a tune-up that De La Hoya had. Um, and I can't even remember the name of the fighter. But it was the same card where Joey Gamash got his ass handed to him by our uh, – I was at that fight. Yeah, that was uh, Oscar named Daryl yes. Foley. Yes, thank you. Fantastic. Daryl Pope. I don't, I don't remember how his last name was uh, pronounced, but uh, he was like a WBC mandatory, but a good, good, decent boxer, but kind of a skinny guy. Didn't have the power or strength to keep sure. that keep that version of Oscar Absolutely. off him. That was Madison Square Garden. Yes, I remember it well. Well, I'm I'm in conversation with Bud Schulberg and uh, Bert Sugar. And oh, two of my favorites. absolutely. 
and uh, Michael Grant walks by. And also, I have a, my, my, one of my other Chicago radio hosts with me, a guy named Mike North. But, you know, Bert, Bert Budd and I, you know, we know our boxing. And Michael comes by, and, oh, hi, how are you doing, Michael? And as soon as he's out of earshot, I'm like, am I nuts? Or is this guy a figment of HBO's imagination? And they both start <laughs> laughing. And they're like, oh, yeah, please. Yeah. And, and Mike North's like, what's going on? What are you talking about? What? And I'm like, no, I go, and really, no, no, no. And well, I've already disrespected Michael Grant. And I don't mean to. But he, he was no. that classic post. He looked hard. Yes. And he, and, he, and, and he was a natural on camera. He had the personality yes, but, to be a crossover star. But, you know, bottom line was this is a guy who started boxing as an adult, yes. had maybe like 18 amateur bouts under his belt. And I remember I remember saying something bad about him after even before he lost to Lewis, he struggled. He went life and death with uh, Andrew Galata. Yes. And he was lucky that Galata was just a mental pygmy, just, you know. Quit basically, but he was Galata was winning the fight, and I was t- in fact I was talking to uh, Nazim Richardson mm-hmm. and James Fisher, who was the son of uh, Bernard Hopkins' uh, original trainer, oh, okay. Bowie Fisher. Okay. Yeah. So this is uh, this was in Las Vegas, and it was a Bernard Hopkins camp. He was training at Johnny Taco's gym sure. in Vegas, an old yes. gym doesn't exist yes. anymore. Uh, I remember it was, it was, it was, it was the summer. It was hot as hell, whatever. I'm, so I'm talking about, uh, how, you know, I'm saying, you know, uh, you know, Grant's going nowhere. And they're like, what do you mean going nowhere? Cause I think the, um, the Lewis fight had been made and, uh, and I was like, there's no way he beats Lennox Lewis. And, uh, it was either Richardson or it was James Fisher, but he said, so what? He's going to make $5 million. <laughs> Uh, and I'm, I'm like, yeah, but the guy, he, he can't fight, you know? And he's like, and he, 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 I'll never forget this. He says, Michael Grant's a basketball player. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah. They've done pretty well with the guy who was basically a junior college basketball exactly. player. Not bad. I mean, they got him. To, I don't know. They, he was undefeated. I don't know how many fights. 20, you know, I can go to Box Rec and look, sure. you know, 25 and oh, yeah. 28 and no. Well, you can find 20 guys to beat. I mean, unfortunately. <laughs> contenders you know he beat Lou Savarese and he, he did get the victory <laughs> against Andrew Glotta and he beat uh, some That's guy fair. I remember David Eisen, who was kind of dangerous or whatever but they got him to the big stage and he and he totally imploded exactly. <laughs> and I was at that covered that fight that was also at Madison Square Garden that was in 2000 I think early 2000 you know, I remember I remember Emmanuel Stewart saying that he was scouting like division three colleges for athletes <laughs> And stuff. Yeah. And man, you know, and I'm sure you had your great experiences with Emmanuel as well. Again, it was really, I was always fortunate when I was at a fight and Bert Sugar was with me because then I became his wingman. Well, that was the great thing about both Bert Sugar and Emmanuel Stewart is they were very encouraging to people who were new on yes. the beat or new to the yes. business. They, they weren't those kind of uh, long timers that felt threatened or just didn't have time for people who were new on the Agreed. scene. They were they were very welcoming, accommodating, uh, and, and encouraging. And it was I think that was just their personalities. I, I mean right. they like they liked it. and newbies are captive audiences. Of, of course. Like, yeah, Tell me everything. And they love to talk. So, you know, they don't mind being the center of attention. Oh, yeah. But it was, it was great because you learned a lot. And, and that's a great thing about particularly when when you started on the beat, they were they were 
great, not just great boxing people or great boxing writers, but all-time great writers, period, like Bud Schulberg, that you could sit next to a long press row, or just like a longtime guy like like Jack Obermeyer, who, you know, you just listen to him talk and you learn about the game. Agreed. You learn about what's transpiring in the ring, but you also learn about covering the sport. Totally, man. No, you're right. And, and, and these guys didn't have egos. These guys didn't. They weren't nasty. I mean, they were they were cool guys. Yes. And in fact, they were sweet guys. Yes, I completely agree. And and yeah, and another, Angelo Dundee was like that and very sweet to me, and uh, had had great hangouts with him. Yeah, it's yeah, man. I uh, well, and again, I think that's why we love the sport. And I'm really glad that you continue to be employed and and are, are having a, a a nice career because you're a talented guy. You know your stuff and. I'm glad you're getting the platform to uh, to do it, and also to to you know make make decent money on it. So I'm uh, I'm, ha- I'm of course Thank we could always make more. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I was gonna, all right. I, I don't want to keep because I know we're getting to two hours, and I and I don't want to keep you long if if you're getting tired of talking to me. But I oh no, I, I I'm good. I can I can talk boxing and comic books for it. <laughs> well, I want to know, especially now that we're close to Deontay Wilder and Joshua meeting. Um, because I think, and and again, I've been reading what you guys have been saying online at Ring, and I agree that there's a lot of talent there. There's a lot of power there, but there, but and and I know you feel, or at least I want to hear your opinion. There are flaws in in Deontay Wilder, and I I hope nothing against him because I think he's a he's a talented fighter, but it would be nice to see Anthony Joshua kind of pick him apart the same way that. Holyfield was able to dismantle Mike Tyson. I think that's possible. The thing about Deontay Wilder is he can hurt anybody he hits cleanly. Yeah. Or even if it if it's not a flush power punch. <laughs> yeah. He can hurt anybody. He's um he's a special athlete. He's not a world class boxer. If you look at the first four rounds against Luis Ortiz, he has the look of somebody who you know, first stepped into a gym about three Agreed. years ago, and that's and the Michael like Grant. The Michael Grant comparison comes to mind. Go on. It's exactly yeah. I mean, he's he has an incredibly raw look to him. Um, he's somebody who has more than thirty professional fights. He was an Olympic bronze medalist from the two thousand and eight yep. games, but he just doesn't have that kind of boxing talent where he gets the form down. Um, ha- having said that, his athlete, he's such a good athlete. He's so fast and so powerful and explosive. His reflexes are so good, he gets away with it. And beyond his reflexes, and he proved this in the Ortiz fight, he has the intangibles. He has heart. He has a fighter spirit. And the most important thing about Wilder is that he knows what he is. He knows he's not a technical boxer. He knows he's a puncher. That's his mentality. So he can be losing a fight handily. He could be out on his feet. He still believes he can win the fight if he can land that one punch. And if he lands that one punch, he goes crazy. I mean, he literally looks like like he doesn't know how to fight at all. And when he goes for the kill, he gets so wild. I mean, he falls over himself. Yes. He misses with his <laughs> He's flailing arms. I mean, he looks like a, 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 a girl in sixth grade fighting on the playground, <laughs> which is really emotional, you know? I mean, it just flinging arms away it's just but i mean he has that instinct uh to to finish a fight when he has his fighter hurt 
So he's very dangerous. Uh, and, uh, you know, Anthony Joshua, I mean, he looks the part. I call him uh, a colossus. I mean, he looks like he's out of a comic book with that physique. <laughs> Uh, but he has the technique. He's a more polished boxer. Um, he's been developed very well. He's very cool, calm, and collected in there. Uh, and he proved a lot with that passing of the torch against Vladimir Klitschko. And I think he grew a lot from that fight. And I think he's grown a lot from his past two fights because he's been forced to go rounds. They, they go into the tent and the round. And, and then it, in his most recent fight against um, Joseph Parker, he had to go the 12-round distance. And I think those are learning experiences. Um, but he doesn't have a George Chavalo chin. You know, he's not a, he's not, he's not George Foreman. You, you know, he's not one of these guys that can just take incredible – He's not, you know, he's not like a Vander Holyfield. You know, he doesn't have a world class chin. He can be hurt. Great. Um, and if he can be hurt, Wilder can stop you. So it's a, very, it's a fascinating matchup. It's kind of one of those fights where I think the common wisdom is going to be that Wilder is dangerous early, and but if he can't hurt or take out Joshua in the first four or five rounds, then Joshua takes over. Um, but bo- the great thing about boxing is that it constantly flips that script. Yes. You, you know, Guess when you think you know what's going to happen, um, it shows you something unexpected. Uh, and I think it was Larry Merchant who called boxing the theater of the unexpected, exactly. and that's per- that's exactly what. And if it wasn't that way, we'd all get bored and walk away know, from it. You know, we're like you junkies, know. man. It, it, just, it would just it, it would be uninteresting. So <laughs> um, I think when if you know, I think that that heavyweight showdown will happen, and it's great because they're undefeated, and it'd be for the undisputed heavyweight title. All the major sanctioning titles right. on the line. Um, it might happen late this year because I think the handlers of both fighters realize that, you know, they've got studs, but they're, they're both guys are kind of vulnerable, too. They could lose to a, a legit top 10 contender. So they do want to make that money. And there's a lot of money on the line for this showdown. Um, but at the same time, because there's a lot of money uh, on the line, the negotiation process um, gets very intense, uh, and they run into walls, and and so it might not happen until the spring of next year. But I definitely think it is going to happen. Um, it, it's going to happen in the near future. Well, and you want it to happen while they're still in their prime. And I mean, that's yeah. You know, I and, and forgive me because I know we can't have a Mayweather-Pacquiao situation. Exactly. That's no exactly, good. man. That's, and that's and that's the thing. And that's kind of what we were talking about earlier too. And you know, I mean, really, uh, even even Triple G, I think, being a fighter in his early mid thirties, obviously, just the, turned- the clock's running on Triple G too. True, it is. So yeah, I mean, it's that that's the thing, and I and that's why I understand that they want the gate, the promoters want the gate to be as high as possible, and the interest to be there. But by the same token, you don't want to miss your window of opportunity. Good lord, the worst example is, as you know, Roy Jones and Bernard Hopkins waiting 20 years to have their... You know, I did... You talk about uh, broadcast experience. I I did that pay-per-view with Sugar Ray Leonard and Joe Tessitore, and it was bizarre. I mean, it was a a bit of an out-of-body experience working next to Ray Leonard, because he was a boyhood hero. Testator is one of these people that I've been hearing for the past 15 years on ESPN and not just boxing, but other sports like horse racing or whatever. And I think Testator is going to be doing the NFL. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And he's, and he's an amazing talent. Um, so that was just that just working with those two was, was, 
I mean, that was great, uh, but it was also intimidating. But from start to finish, that main event, oh my God, <laughs> like, what was that? But what, you know, what could we expect? I mean, by that point, Roy Jones had been knocked out like three or four yep. times. In fact, he was coming off a first-round stoppage by some Australian guy. Yeah, uh, Art Hopkins is uh, deep into his forties. Yes, <laughs> you know, your age, forties, my age. Yeah, right. And um, you know, the the first fight I think took place in 1993, and that that fight took place in 2010. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right, that's just long of a wait. Yeah, man, <laughs> that's just too. No, it was ridiculous. I, out to me it doesn't count that that was an exhibition that was well, just and weird again, be, the first fight was such an Im- intense chess match it wasn't dramatic yeah. in terms of big punches it was two workmen that were figuring each other out and yeah i mean it was just like okay let's see what happens and and then to wait like you said nearly 20 years for the rematch it's 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 unforgivable and that's the kind of thing that always hurts boxing and it's one step forward three steps back you're right. You're absolutely right. And I hope we're done with that sort of thing. And I'm feeling hopeful uh, for that because, you know, Golovkin Canelo happened when it needed to happen. Now, could it have? Could could the first fight have taken place in 2016? Yes, it could have happened. It probably should have happened, but it wasn't past its sell date in September of 2017. Agreed. Uh, and the proof is that the fight was pretty yes. good. It wasn't great, but it was, it was pretty darn good. good. It was very good without being great. I, I agree with you. Yeah. And the rematch, which will take place one year after the first fight, um, I think will be better. Uh, and that's what we need. We need good fights. And, and then we also need uh, the officials to do the right thing and call the, the, the fight that actually takes place uh, in the square well, ring. I know there's still chicanery going on in the various states and also countries that govern these sports. And I, I don't know. I'm hoping that the naked eye of of television and also uh, the buyer's remorse that sometimes comes yeah. after a, a suspect fight uh, will, yeah. will inform these people to make the right decisions. And, yeah. and again, we're, that's – go ahead. There's a lot of pressure on the Nevada Athletic Commission to, to, to put – you know, to, to have the, the best referee and uh, the best judges possible for this rematch. Uh, and I think the the promoters, particularly on Triple G's side, they're going to be they're going to open their mouths a little bit more. You know, they're going to if they if they don't feel comfortable with a certain uh, official, they're going to say something. They were kind of quiet going into the first fight because that was the first time Triple G was in there with a bona fide superstar, and he was making by far the biggest purse of his career, and it was like the biggest fight of that year. But uh, going into this rematch, no, nah, they, they don't care. They're going to speak out on everything. Oh, yeah. uh, so hopefully, but that, but hopefully that's beneficial for the fans, and and we just get the right officials Agreed. there. We get listen; these guys are world class middleweights. It's a world class boxing match and event. We need world class officials. Agreed. Up and down, absolutely, man. No, a hundred percent. Well, Doug, I'll tell you what; we'll wrap up because uh, we're close to two hours, and I don't want to uh, keep your whole night. But uh, I hope you'll come back, and and especially in the fall. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, maybe you know, maybe have a post fight uh, talk about uh, Canelo and Triple G, and uh, but yeah, man, and we'll get more into your uh, your love of comics as well. I thank you for this. <laughs> I'm, I keep toying. I'll tell my listeners as well because I'll see what their response is. I keep toying with the idea of doing a boxing podcast because of my background and my love of the sport. And I'll be honest, I would really focus more on the history, and then when a big fight comes up, sure, I'll talk about it. 
and that, that but no, I, that, but you know, Frank is you're a great interviewer. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. So, you know what? I mean, and, and and I think that's you know one of the many reasons why these comic book creators that you and I grew up with have so much respect for you is because you conduct a good interview with them personally, but then they also enjoy listening to you interview other comic book creators, but then other people uh, from outside the comic book world. Thank you, man. I'm sure you've interviewed folks that, you know, like, you know, actors or, or, or whoever, you know, uh, and they're like, oh, I, I'm a fan of that person's work, you know, and, you know, or I, I remember watching this person on television or in movies or whatever. And you're asking the questions that they would ask them. Well, that's kind. And I, I, they appreciate that. So, you know, there's like you said, there's a lot of podcasts. There's not a lot of really good interviews. Well, there you go. Well, I appreciate that. And again, that's one of the reasons why I started doing podcasting back in 2005. And uh, yeah, I, I uh, like I said, luckily after 13 years, I'm getting opportunities beyond what I started with, and uh, and I'm happy to get those opportunities. And like I said, yeah, just uh, trying to figure it out. But, uh, no, thanks for your time. Thanks for being one of those great guests that I can talk to. And uh, continued success at, uh, at The Ring. And uh, looking forward to uh, new content from Doug Fisher. I appreciate your time today, dude. Thank you, John. Nice chat with Doug Fisher. Uh, lots is going on in boxing. I'll tell you, we got, like I said, uh, Triple G and uh, Canelo Alvarez coming up in September. And hopefully uh, we'll see what happens with Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder. Um, right now, it seems like uh, the fight is still in no- negotiation. I've seen these things fall apart before. I'm sure we all have. I mean, it took 20 years for Roy Jones and Bernard Hopkins to have a rematch. It's ridiculous sometimes how stupid boxing negotiations can get. But that's part of the carnival ridiculousness that uh, keeps me interested in boxing. Because it is. It's a train wreck of a sport. And as I've said before, it's run by guys that would be running the tilt a world at the carnival if they hadn't fallen in ass backwards into uh, some multi-million dollar deals with some of these fighters and riding their coattails to riches and sometimes uh, taking these guys to the top but also leaving them at the bottom when uh, the fight game is done with them. It's, uh, it's a very noir sport and I think that's one of the reasons why I, I still find it fascinating. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversations, of course about comics as well on today's Word Balloon. All brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Again, thank you for your support, League, uh, via Patreon. If you want to subscribe to Word Balloon, Word Balloon is free. It will always be free. But if you want to help out the cause, go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or click on the ad uh, on the front page of wordballoon.com. Thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your continued support. Hope you enjoyed today's Word Balloon. Uh, join me in a couple days. We've got more great stuff coming up. We also released today a great interview with Jerry Ordway, the great Superman, Justice Society, and Infinity Incorporated, Power of Shazam, creator, wonderful artist, wonderful writer, and a great conversation alongside with today's conversation with Doug. I hope you'll check it out. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.